Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. I am back with Adam Clement. Adam, as you may remember, is a therapist, uh, specifically a marriage therapist, but I think he does many, many other types of things as well. Uh, do you want to give us just a brief rundown? And then we'll actually get into our topic today, which is going to be masculine and feminine dynamics in marriage. I think it's going to be ridiculously practical and helpful for a lot of people. Sure. Yeah. What would you like to know? Uh, just uh, just uh, refresh us on your credentials here real quick. Absolutely. Yeah, so I am a marriage and family therapist. Um, a lot of my speciality is working with couples. Um, I have a lot of extra training and, and years of study that I do within that area. Um, but I do also work with um, individuals and family dynamics as well. Uh, but I would say definitely my bread and butter, my, my preferred clientele is definitely working with couples. That's something I'm very passionate about and have just enjoyed for quite a while now. So I'm very um, interested in a lot of these topics of how men and women uh, coexist and, and are certainly complementary to each other, but also the beauty of that is in our differences, how we complement so well. And to be fair, I think there's also an, uh, kind of an air of what we can learn beneficially from that collaboration in an intimate relationship. So uh, I'm really excited to talk more about what that looks like, how we're designed, um, and, and the benefits of being able to collaborate those two different types of, um, let's say, styles of loving each other. Okay. I Look, I, I buy into the fact that, I, I think it's a fact, that there are many differences between men and women. I think that men and women are more alike than they are different. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've read a lot of psychology from a wide variety of points of view, and and I've been alive for over fifty years, so that's <laughs> my expertise. You know, take it for what it's worth. But uh, so l let's address like what I think is the primary objection to what you just said is sure. what, what would you do with the people who say, "Hey, listen, there are no differences between men and women." <laughs> Fair. Uh, so I have kind of a – there's a really fascinating study that they did. I think it was like in the Scandinavian countries, um, kind of around those differences of men and women, right? And they, they did this really interesting study um, kind of like over the last, let's say, 20-some years. Um, and the interesting thing about it is that the conclusion is actually directly opposed to, let's say, the hypothesis, the idea, right? So there were a lot of um, scientists kind of went into this idea trying to, let's say – make the the choices between men and women as egalitarian, as equal as they possibly can, try to zero out all of the um, barriers that they could possibly do in, in their society. And what they actually found is the more equal opportunity available for men and women, the more divergent the interests are, okay. which was directly opposed to what was presumed, which is if men and women are given the exact same things in front of them, they will act exactly the same as each other. Okay. The research the, over you know, generations that they were working on this progress with found that given the slew of options as, as openly as possible – Again, this might not be a shock, but it's fascinating to have it be the exact opposite of what the presumed desired outcome was, was that women tend to go into fields that, that were more directed towards people, and men tended to go into fields that were more directed towards stuff. And so it was actually much more pronounced in this uh, environment than they would have expected or would have perceived, which I think shows that there's just that inherent difference even if you try to zero out all the variables, that men and women were, were, were behaving and were treated differently. I've heard of this study, and, and basically the way it was explained to me is that Scandinavia has created the most egalitarian society on the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. And there are basically as little obstacles as possible facing a man or facing a woman in terms of what they might want to do. 
And uh, then it turned out that 95% of the mechanical engineers still turned out to be men. And 95% of the nurses yep. or like healthcare providers like that turned out to be women. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just, it fit exactly <laughs> what you said that, uh, look, there's there's exceptions. There's guys who want to go into oh, nurturing professions. You're a therapist, I'm a teacher, mm-hmm. you know, and then there are women who prefer to work with things, you know. But on the other hand, when you look at various blue collar jobs, and some of these pay extremely well, like Elevator repairman, $110,000 a year. Sure. That was five years ago before all the inflation. Uh, You know, and just like these jobs are, there's, I have 20 of them that I do in personal finance class that are well above the median income. And they are all just heavily skewed toward guys. And then I asked like the high school girls, well, what do you think about being an oil rig worker? And they all looked at me like, I don't know, my eyebrows have been eaten by weevils or something. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, I think that's such an interesting concept of just looking at how we're different. I mean, there's been studies on, let's say, let's go the biological route. Um, there are interesting studies like like looking at primates. They would give um, okay. primates different toys, right? And what they found, even this process between the male and female primates, um, was that you they would gave a um, a doll to the 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 boys, the the, the male primates, and they would just okay. tear that thing apart okay. and throw at each other and all this stuff. It becomes a weapon. It becomes a weapon almost immediately. And they would give the the females like little um, like they would give them like blocks, little bricks, and they would immediately treat them like a baby. And they would oh like you know take care of them and like shoo other people off and like try to protect them. And so it was fascinating. Yeah, the boys would immediately tear the things off and like what wanted to know what was inside the dolls they were given. Okay, like just would tear it apart as quickly as they got. And so even on like a biological level, there's something very much imbued within us that treats things differently. We're, we're tailored effectively towards each other in a very complementary way. Okay. Okay. Well, then let's kind of get into specifics a little bit here. Sure. Um, let's talk about, well, what traits are perhaps more mas- masculine and what <clears throat> traits are perhaps more feminine? And, and again, I just sort of want to repeat, I personally think Anybody can do anything. I'm completely egalitarian. Uh, if we have a woman president, that's cool with me, depending <laughs> upon who she is, et cetera. Uh, I just, uh, I, I'm egalitarian all the way through. But I think that's a different question than what do people prefer to do? So, so I would love to know, um, you know, from your studies, from, from your education, what are the differences sure. between men and women? So I'll go with this from kind of a, a relational standpoint as far okay. as like the, um, what's kind of called like the spirit of like the loving and, and the way in which we do that okay. that are more masculine and then more feminine. And, and to your point, I would agree there is certainly a bell curve where there are certainly men that have, let's say, more of the neuroticism, more like the, the feminine um, traits and there are certainly um, – there's certainly that that you know balance in the bell curve where there's the exceptions, but this is more on the average on what you tend to find interactionally, and it's more of a spectrum of kind of where you can learn best from each other. Right. So I'll start with kind of the, the more masculine side okay. first. That's okay. right. As far as like what is kind of deci- defined as the more masculine um, style of like loving expression, right? Okay. So at its best, let's say, because we need a little bit of both when we're in a relationship with another person. Right. So at its best, you could describe the the masculine style of loving, the, the perception that you are more than you are. Okay. Right? So this would be kind of, let's say, the the coaching mentality of the dad is like, hey, try again. Like, put some oh. effort into it. I think you are more than what you think of yourself, right? Oh, okay. So there's like something Like the little beautiful. kid says, I can't do it, and dad's like, sure you can. Mm-hmm. You know, tosses yeah. the kid into the pool, you know, has them splash about, see if they can swim. Yeah. Okay. And so there's something very lovely about that, the idea that... 
you know, you, you we see more in you than you see in yourself. So there's a, something very lovely about that potential that you can uh, um, kind of be able to endorse and encourage in another person. Inspirational. Now, to be fair, there is the 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 toxic extent of that. Let's say if that goes too far, if that's not well managed or maintained that can certainly develop into more of, let's say, um, conditional love for something, right? So oh. it's until you have done the thing, until you have done something worthy of note, you're not going to get my attention, my approval, my praise, whatever okay. that would be. performance-based. So, yeah. Yeah. And so that would be the unhealthy extent of that, okay. the idea that until you've done something, you're not worth my time, okay. versus the very healthy version of masculine love, which is I see more in you than you see in yourself, which mm. is a very lovely concept. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that would be the the more male side, okay. let's say, the more on average. Okay. Then and what's then we, the female? Yes, yeah, so then we go to the, the female side of that, right? Okay. So the the healthy version of that, the the idyllic version of female love is, you have value the way you are. Okay. Which is lovely. It's okay. So it's no matter what you do, we'll love you. If you make mistakes, if you stumble and fall, if you make bad decisions, you have a safe place to come back to. You have value no matter what. Like and that cliche, the mom mom loves you no matter what. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Been arrested 17 times. Mom loves me no matter what. Yeah. And there's something beautiful about that, being able to still, let's say, love the person despite the behavior, right? Yes. So being called to still be able to separate, you know, somebody's failings from who they are, uh, that, that, you know, that unique person that they represent. And there's something, again, very beautiful about that. Yeah. And in a similar note, there's a toxic version. There's a unhealthy extent of the more um, feminine style of love, which is um, kind of like the, they call it like the Oedipal complex, the Oedipal mother effectively. Okay. Um, like smothering? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so it's like the over-functioning of the over-pampering to oblivion of your child. Okay. Um, like it, spoil your kid rotten? To a degree, yes. Okay. It's, it'd be something of the kind of like, you know, keeping your child at, overly protected to the point of being unfunctional. Okay. So like keeping them locked in the basement for fear of anything bad happening to them. Okay. But then they have no skills, no resilience, no ability to engage in the world themselves. Mm, okay. And so it's done with a, let's, it's called like a hyper-compassion. Hyper-compassion. To where it's compassion at the expense of the person. So it's, it makes me feel better to help you even if it robs you the opportunity to grow into yourself, try something, go out of your comfort zone. Okay. And so that would be the unhealthy version of that. It's I'm trying to protect you even from yourself, getting stronger, getting healthier, doing something. Is that what it's called in the literature, hyper-compassion? I've heard versions of that, yes. Okay, okay, okay. That's super interesting. Uh, you know, I read a story in a book called The Millionaire Mind. This <laughs> economist studied, I think, like 1,500 millionaires across the United States and he was talking a little bit about how they raise their children. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people are aware, some of these millionaires are aware, that they have a spoiled brat problem sometimes. <laughs> that sometimes, like, daddy and mom make a really, really wonderful business. Then they give it to their kids, and the kids make it huge and great and awesome. And then the third generation just blows it to crap mm-hmm. because they're spoiled, they're entitled, and uh, they just they, they don't know how to work. And they the don't, road is plowed ahead for them. Yeah, and they don't want to work. And so, so they understand some of these families have really learned that, hey, this is an actual problem. This is a pitfall. We have to do something about this. And apparently the key is to, like, give kids responsibilities. You yeah. know, even if you have $20 million and you're taking vacations in Switzerland, you know, when we come back, yeah, we get up at 6 in the morning and we have these various chores that we do and... You know, just expectations and response. Mm-hmm. Is, is that correct? Is that how More you... More or less, yeah. I mean, there's certainly 
that need, that desire to be able to function, be able to feel like we can do something that again, if, if things are done for us, if, if, if things are taken care of for us, that there's actually some interesting psychological studies of like just the the way that affects us on a fundamental level, right? The difference of choosing stress versus having stress thrust upon you. Yeah, stress versus you stress. Mm -hmm. The Greeks call it you stress, which is like, hey, I choose to run a marathon. I choose Mm -hmm. to lift weights, those type of things. So when everything is done for you, it's bad. Yeah, stress is like, oh my God. A good way of putting it is like, it's kind of like removing all the weights off the bar, expecting to get stronger. It's like, oh, that's too heavy for you. And so it's like the mother of like, let me do your homework for you. Let me Mm. do that project. Let me talk to your boss for you. Let me do all of these things. Okay. good intent. It's like, I'm trying to save you from discomfort, not recognizing the benefits of discomfort and growth and, and, and potential to be had there. And so it is, yeah, it, there is a lot of interesting concepts around. Um, I think Jordan Peterson uses a version of that um, when it comes to parenting. Okay. I think that the example that he uses is effectively do, when it comes to raising your child, it's do as little as you possibly can at every moment of their life. Okay. Now, it's not to neglect, it's not to do anything hurtful or anything, but it's yeah, you're going to certainly way over-function when they're infants. Fair enough. Yeah. You're, you're going to do everything for them. But the goal is as they get older to pull back as much as you possibly can, to let them fail a little bit, let them strive, let them learn and do something okay. outside of themselves to see what they're capable of. And you yeah. can usually tell the difference of the, the – even like at a pretty young age, you can usually tell the difference between the kids that are – overly pampered and taken care of and they're just like kind of skittish and they can't handle any sort of like bumping into or any sort of friction or adversity versus the ones that have been like, you know, encouraged to try things out, to be rough and tumble played with, to do something to make themselves uncomfortable to see what they can tolerate. Okay. Now, is there a difference with little boys and little girls in terms of rough and tumble play? There is as far as, let's say, desire in an amount of them. Okay. But I'm also a big proponent that even young girls need some rough and tumble play. Okay. They need uh, some. Absolutely. Okay, and, so like if their brother tackles them or maybe their sister tackles them, then it's fine. No, I think there's a certain degree of like, you know, you don't obviously want like significant damage to be done, but right. odds are they're probably not going to cause any like lasting damage, all things considered if they're rolling around on the floor. But there is something beneficial, I would say, even for, you know, like parents, caregivers, babysitters, whatever it is, to kind of like get on the floor, to kind of roll around with them, to, uh-huh. you know, be somewhat physical, I think is extremely beneficial. Yeah, I think so Even too. in just being able to interact with like other children, is it like, oh, they bump into me, I'm going to lose it every time? Or is it, oh, you bumped into me and I'm almost like, I'm not phased by it. I immediately go back to what I'm doing. It's not a problem. So even rough and tumble play for both boys and girls it helps to kind of encourage a little bit of like bodily autonomy okay. to where we're more comfortable in our own skin. We're not as, you know, you can usually tell the difference of, let's say, the the kind of crying wolf mentality of like anytime we get slightly injured, we okay. need attention versus I want to keep doing what I'm doing so I can tolerate a little bit of discomfort and because that would just get in the way of my fun and what I'm involved in. I'm only going to cry out if I'm genuinely in pain okay. and that will happen much more rarely. Okay. Okay. Um, so do you, do you mind if we um, uh, go back to the adults here? And yes. We'll, I'm sure we'll Please. come back to the kids. But, Absolutely. But let's go to the adults. And uh, so I, I think you already mentioned, you know, so the, the men, uh, they see more in you and they want to challenge you. And the women very frequently love you just as you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of the other things that, that are very common? Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll, I'll go with that a little bit if that's all right. Um, Please do. Because I'll say that I'll use that, and let's say an intimate relationship as an example. Okay. Because um, part of what makes any intimate relationship work, and I would say that of you know close friends, family members, um, and even spouses, some degree, we are called to love. Let's say 
um, the two aspects of what we exist as. It's both the creature that we are and also the creature that we're becoming. And so either one to the extreme, we're kind of missing out on something. So let's say somebody gets married. It's like, oh, I love this person, but I refuse to like let them change or do anything new and different. Well, I can feel deceived because they're going to be a different person over yeah, time. So are. give or they take are. 5, 10, 15 years, the person that you marry is not going to be just a fixed point that does what you want in that right. moment. So right. yes, you're loving them as they are, fair enough. But there's also potential and progress and investment in who they want to become and what their new excitements are. Yeah, you could be a very different person, say, three years from now. You could pick up a a new hobby. You could do a bunch of traveling. Uh, There could be something from the outside that comes in and makes a gigantic impact on you. Uh, You could gain 50 pounds. You could lose (laughs) 30 pounds. You could uh, pick up a degree. You could uh, Mm -hmm. stop reading books. You could start reading books. Yeah. So I I do think there has to be some love for who the person is becoming, some curiosity into what their, you know, their goals are, what their values are, what they're trying to accomplish, what their potential stressors could be. Okay. And also you have to kind of love and take care of the person that you're currently with. Okay. That is also an important piece of it. I had a um, a client back in the day where fascinating, I'll kind of summarize a little bit of it, but okay. um, effectively this, this, this couple, this woman had married her husband and he, he was relatively upfront and pretty straightforward. Like he just did not want kids. Okay. That was just his, his, uh, his personal desire. And she, she kind of went along with that thinking that she could change that. Um. And upon coming into me for treatment, I kind of was probing. It's like, oh yeah, no, I totally agree. He, he said he didn't want that, but I figured I could change him if I just kept badgering, kept talking about, <laughs> kept doing things. Like, and, and I remember thinking about that. It's like, you didn't clearly love him who he was at the time. Right. You were hoping that you could change him. That's such a fundamental thing, too, that, okay, sure, somebody could change their mind about that. I, I know at least, yeah, sure. I know at least one person who changed her mind about that. I do. But that is such a fundamental thing that I, I just don't see how a relationship can honestly survive that. Mm. Well, I think the problem there is, let's say, uh, the the... I think there's a difference of like genuinely changing your mind to be okay with that. And I think there's a, a mutuality that can happen. I find it a little bit harder to like to to build trust in a couple if we knew that ahead of time we were going right. to do it. And we we were deceptive intentionally right. in saying that, yes, I'm fine with that when clearly I'm not and I'm going yeah. to use that eventually. It's okay. very different than, I, yeah, I regulate myself to the idea that we'd never have kids. And if we did, that'd be awesome. Or if he was, let's say, somewhat... Um, somewhat, let's say, ill-defined on whether he wanted to or not and was maybe ambivalent is okay. one thing. But him saying he didn't want to and continue on that path, whether right. I agree with that or not, whether I think right. it's a good idea right, right, or right, not, right. I have tremendous respect for him right. and just the idea that he said exactly what he wanted. He was very straightforward. He kind of sold the bill of goods, so to speak. He was crystal clear. Yes. And then and she, she even agreed with that. And she was just kind of like in the back of her mind hoping he would change his mind. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I, here's what I'm hearing you say, that there's actually two problems here. The first problem is children versus no children. Mm. And then the second problem is is uh, honesty and trust versus, uh, I guess, maybe dishonesty and, and potential for lack of trust. And so, sure. like, this is, is, is that correct? Am I mm-hmm. hearing you correctly? Yeah. Okay, so then, so maybe the real problem isn't children or no children, because if she would have been mm-hmm. crystal clear and said, well, listen, I want to have kids. And if we get married, I will fully expect to have kids. (laughs) And I'm not on board with your program of no kids. And so if we happen to have kids, then, well, then there's going to be kids. Yep. You know, like had she been, maybe she could have said it in a more polite way than what I just said. But but okay, so then just if he was super clear on, hey, no kids, and if she was super clear on kids, then at least we wouldn't have the second problem, which Mm. is 
trust and honesty versus like, I don't know, either deception or, or whatever the case may be. Mm. Is that correct? More or less. I would okay. say so. So how did it end up? How did the relationship end up? Did they um, get married? Did they have kids? So I, I, I met with them within my practice, and this was um, kind of years down the line, let's say. And I don't think I saw them more than a few times and kind of calling out this discrepancy of like you – you know, claimed to love him for who he was and who he was saying he was, and none of that's necessarily changed as far as that goal of his. Okay. But her desire was to, you know, change him over time and right. change that answer right. the way she could. Right. Right. Um, I think since she was the one who kind of called and wanted to work on things, I think she was somewhat dissatisfied with my okay. representation of, well, like... how did they handle that in a... Okay, so, like, let's say a couple comes into you, and I don't know, let's call them John and Susan, and mm. let's say on a particular day you side with John, and on a different day you side with Susan... How do they handle that? <laughs> well, my, do they feel way. ganged up on? Do they feel like, oh my God, two against one? Mm-hmm. What's going on here? How do I find a therapist who agrees with me? Fair. And that is kind of an interesting one. Usually the agenda, if the agenda is to get your therapist to agree with you, it's probably not going to work out very well. Okay. And like to team up against your, your partner. Okay. What I kind of say, I, I say it somewhat jokingly, but also very lovingly, is I usually tell any couple I work with is my job is to equally offend both of you. <laughs> like I'm not here to pick sides. I'm here to just kind of call out the discrepancies of, you know, you're wanting this person to trust you, but you're doing untrustworthy things. So within yourself, you're going to find some discrepancies there and how are they going to take you seriously? Okay. And so it's not so much I'm taking sides. I'm like, somewhere in this conversation there's truth there's something that is reasonable there's a conversation that needs to happen so at what side where is the the conversation breaking down so that's yeah. not necessarily a, a male or female thing it could be either one right 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 but it's just, okay you're claiming one thing but acting in a separate way of course your spouse is going to okay. have a hard time understanding who you are well i, I get that you're not picking sides with mm-hmm. the two but how do they handle that when it just I don't know when the facts, the logic, the heart, the just the everything just clearly lands on one side. Like, like let's say John is right of John and Susan or well, flip it around. Let's say Susan is right. <laughs> I mean, how do we how do they handle that? Like, OK, let's say John's wrong. How does he handle that? This might be kind of skirting around the answer, but the way I kind of put it is that wrong and right is a very risky way to go into looking okay. at conversations in marriage. Because okay. um, a lot of times it's not so much a, a moralistic objective, like there's a good or bad person mm-hmm. wrong or right about it. More often than not, it's an argument of preferences, like how we want to do okay. something, that when we do that, the way we go about it, um, how you're presenting your arguments, how you're treating the other person. Um, so I'm usually less interested in, in tracing, let's say, fault or like who's more yeah. at fault with something. Because yeah. uh, even, I was kind of joking, say, like, even if you trace a conversation back and forth, like, okay. like, and you get a couple to agree that, yes, 100%, all of our problems started with you, Billy, over there. It's entirely your fault. We both agree on that. He's like, yep, it's, it's me. I was deceptive. Okay. And she agrees that even where to come to that conclusion that it's entirely one person's fault, let's say. Okay. We still will come back to the same conclusion going forward, which is, okay, well, then what do we do about that? Right. We have to repair the relationship. Okay. And, so, yeah. I, and that's usually I, where I, I will like usually try I to spin the conversation. Sh- Even if one person is more wrong or right about the specific topic of the day, let's say, it's still a question of, okay, for us to be able to, to reconcile to each other, to have a relationship with anybody, but especially within marriage, because we're constantly going to have times where either one is more the perpetrator or the victim of some misunderstanding, some problem. Okay. You're going to take on both roles at some point. You're going yeah. to be the more hurt person and the the hurting person, like the one who did the okay. hurting. And so the question is not, you know, okay, well, I did nothing wrong here, so you you fix it. You you hurt me, and now you go rogue and try to fix it as well. It tends to be risky. Okay. Versus the idea of... Let's fix it together. Let's do it together. So even if it's like 90% my job to fix... 
the 10% of the other person is I need to be able to forgive you and give you new chances to earn trust. Yeah. Because even if you became hypothetically the the perfect, flawless human being and never made a mistake again, <laughs> if I don't let go of, let's say, that that um, resentment, that vitriol, right, okay. that, that trump card in any conversation, okay. no matter how healthy a person becomes, if I don't choose to forgive and to allow them in and to, to put myself out there, okay. the relationship can't go forward, even if it's through no fault of my own to start with, because it requires two people to change if we're going to reconcile, not just yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. That's that's really good. And uh, I don't know why I cast things in terms of right and wrong. <laughs> I feel like an idiot because really I believe in uh, – I got this from Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, but sure. there's a chapter on negotiation. And there's like six different scenarios, like win-win or no deal, win-lose, which is good for sports, lose-win, which is also good for sports, or for making a sacrifice for somebody you love, lose-lose, which is not good. That's when you lose and they lose, and yeah. you want them to lose and because you're going to lose. And that's the idea of compromise, like a lose-lose situation. Yeah, that's that's not a good – there's nobody – that's a bad one. And then there's win. That's when you don't care about the other person, like I'm taking an algebra test. I'm, I'm really not too interested in how my classmates are doing necessarily until <laughs> maybe later. And then there's win-win compromise. But the win-win is like you win, we win, and that's what you would want. Mm -hmm. I think in a friendship or a marriage or just practically any relationship. So I I don't even know why I cast it as as the other thing, as like, oh, one person's right, one person's wrong. I don't know what I was thinking because I I think I would appreciate a win-win scenario, Mm -hmm. basically. And that's the way I come at it from a practice standpoint. Now, again, being the human being that I am, I certainly, let's say, have a, a predisposition. And it, a lot of it just depends on the situation, which spouse I might be like more more empathic towards, oh, more sure. aligned with. Uh, I don't think that's a possibility not to have. Yeah. But I think that the goal for me is always to be able to see it from both sides because I will right. also be – I'm thinking like within my own marriage, there will be times where I am the one who either intentionally or unintentionally hurt my wife and I have to be the you know, repentant, apologetic one. But I also have to hold her accountable to – Okay, what can I do to make it up to you? Can you give me more chances? I can't just wait on you hand and foot permanently and that be a healthy like partnership. Okay. Just as much as if she hurts my feelings, I'm not going to hold it against her permanently. It's like, hey, what can we do about this? How can we both be different? What, what could I have done differently to set you up for success? With any failure in a relationship, there's a different version of that relationship of both people being different to make it work better. You know, I just want to give you a big compliment right now, which is you are remarkably jargon-free. <laughs> there are a lot of, I don't know, counselors, therapists, people like that out there who, I, to me, it's like, hey, there's just way too much jargon here. And to me, sometimes that expresses actually an inability to think. If you can put things in terms that the intelligent person can understand, but who does not have specific training in that particular area, then I, I just think you tend to be a more intelligent professional. I'm just thinking about doctors who work with people's hearts. And, you know, when speaking with a 10-year-old, they would say your daddy had a severe heart attack. They wouldn't necessarily say myotachycardial infarction, (laughs) you know, not to a Mm 10-year-old. And if you could explain it to an intelligent person in words that they can understand, Mm. then I I feel like you really know what you're talking about. Uh, Sometimes I just feel like jargon covers things up uh, rather than explains. Um, 
so anyway, I just wanted to say that. And I appreciate that. There are times where I will, like, humorously enough, I will ask clients permission to use, like, more jargony terms of things and explain them what I mean by that. It's like, okay, here's what you're kind of dealing with. Let me let me put a framework around what you're okay. dealing with. So, like, if I go into a negative sentiment override, that's okay. a lot of words to just basically say you're so hurt that everything the other person does is seen through just negativity in a bad, you know. I love that. Negative that. sentiment override. Yes. <laughs> Essentially, it's if you do something good, I'm still so hurt that it's, like, it's too little too late or oh. – I'm, I'm assuming there's something negative coming later. So it's that just no matter what you do, I've been hurt enough or, or jaded enough to no matter what you do, it's seen through that negative lens. Okay. Um, and so I'll use that, but I'll, like, I'll preference that by saying, like, let me explain what I mean by this. Okay. It's a simplified way of looking at it. It's it's it, There's a lot of, you know, research and concept behind it, but it's always with the explanation of here's, like, the metaphors, here's examples of how this works. Okay. Okay. Now I, I'm going to do my best to stop sidetracking you. Oh, you're uh, good. <laughs> uh, is there a list? Is there, like, a... Uh, a list of traits that are more masculine and a list of traits that are more feminine, if I'm framing this question correctly. There are certainly um, traits that are much more, let's say, um, on average, kind of more like considered feminine. Right. Although, again, I think a lot of it is subject to the different individuals dealing with it. So you could certainly say that men strive more for um, like protection and functionality, and, and they're able to um, compartmentalize things both on like a purely physiological level. The way our brain actually functions is different than okay. for women. You can actually tell a, a difference between male and female brains okay. on a just physiological level to where they they they, they function differently. Okay. Um, whereas women, their brains have a lot more neurons that are connected, a lot more integration to where they're able to both, let's say, take in information. 33% quicker than men, Whoa. which I find kind of funny. Whoa. Um, and then everything kind of links to everything. So usually women are, you know, going a mile a minute, connecting all these dots and trying to make sense of it, where men can, I use the example of like you can go golfing for eight hours and not know a thing about your partner that you're playing with other than what clubs they use. Right. All the information is superfluous, unnecessary. You're just doing one thing at a time. So we're, yeah, the guys are maybe more focused and the, the women are taking in just tons and tons and tons of information. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you can even say that from like let's say evolutionary psychological perspective, oh, right? Sure. Of like, you know, so the, the women, let's say, needing to be hyper compassion, not being entirely a bad thing, but uh-huh. if they're the ones raising the kids, then there's an example like, you know, if your infant is upset about something, they are one hundred percent of the time right. Right. That if they're upset about something <laughs> They know what they're upset about, and they're trying to convey it to you, and you're just experimenting with, you know, your one of three things it could be that you're trying to figure out how to finagle until they're calm again. Babies like, are always right. Yes. Okay. I've, I've heard the other psychologists say that, hey, if the kid is crying, they have a reason. Yep. Okay. And so... And yeah, they can't articulate it well, but I mean, okay. that's the idea of like, you know, women being hyper-compassionate is they're constantly being attuned to other people and trying to take care of things. Mm. If they weren't hyper-compassionate... They wouldn't take care of the child. You know, children would, would die out, and then you know, okay. civilization wouldn't exist. So the fact they're hyper-compassionate is very much keyed towards if they're not there, the child – like human children do not exist and take care of themselves when they're okay. first born. They need that <laughs> hyper-compassionate you know, other making sure that their needs are met until they're able to function more on their own. And then the job of a, let's say, virtuous woman is knowing when to remove themselves, to step out, to – to, bav- to bravely, like, you know, uh, hold back their tears from their child, to drop off their children at, you know, preschool and then remove themselves okay. rather than, like, crying and, like, waving them through the thing and making your child more and more anxious and upset that they're upsetting mommy. It's like, I'm going to drop you off and I'm going to go home and, and deal with my emotions myself, which okay. is hard. And that is not an easy thing to do. Okay.
Okay, so that's that's what a virtuous. Okay, I, I want to kind of back up and just sort of briefly outline a little evolutionary psychology for sure. people because I, I think that, at least from my point of view, that's been extremely helpful in understanding differences between men and women. My understanding is, is that the number one goal of any species is reproduction, and that, that actually comes first, and survival comes second. Now, this is assuming like a mentally healthy member of this species. So in other words, this is why parents will rush into a burning building or a burning car to rescue their infant because, you know, if survival were first, you'd probably just let the infant die, mm. you know, because I don't want to be in a car when it explodes, you know, and then there's like blood and gore and I'm a part of all that. No, you know, you wouldn't want to do that. You might feel kind of bad for the infant, but you'd let it go because if survival were number one, you would let the infant go. Mm. But nobody wants to do that, at least not a, a, a normal person does sure. not want to do that because reproduction, it's just hardwired into us. And every species will do this essentially, mm. you know, if it's mentally healthy, they'll put reproduction first and and then this winds up driving just a tremendous amount of other behaviors. Mm -hmm. You know, like the man goes out and he becomes like, I don't know, the hunter because somebody's got to bring food home to the cave. And he also gets sent off to war because, well, somebody's got to protect the family from that horrible tribe that lives on the other side of the hill, you know, that doesn't like our tribe, etc. So, mm -hmm. I mean, somebody's got to be the hunter and the warrior. And it's probably going to be the person who's bigger and stronger and maybe a little bit faster, et cetera. Meanwhile, the woman will be back in the cave uh, tending to the infants. And uh, this is why she's more compassionate uh, and more able to focus on 28 things at the same time. Whereas the guy focuses on one thing at a time because he's got to think about throwing that rock and hitting that animal in the head <laughs> so that we can have dinner. Yep. So, but that's what I know. And, and is that even right? I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think that is a lot of kind of what we've developed into and I kind of just what has, let's say, uh, benefited those differences and where it's complementary. So my favorite part uh, of looking at that, so let's, uh, let's go back a little bit maybe to like the, the emotional okay. expression of okay. that loving okay. relationship yeah. is that the ideal with that, say, that loving relationship would be to learn from each other let's say, the thing that we're less prone to do well and kind of balance those. Mm. So rather than, let's say, get into a relationship with your partner and polarize on either end of what you're good at and what they're good at and bring out, let's say, the most toxic versions of our relationship, which is commonplace to, let's say, my way is right or your way of dealing with the kids is wrong and there's like this this polarization. Okay. Rather than look at, okay, what is my what is my partner, what does my spouse do that that I don't, or maybe what do they see that I don't, because our children are better off for having both of us together, yes. having four eyes on a problem rather than just two. Yes. And I think I mentioned, even before we started talking earlier, the, the most significant statistic for like child rearing and success um, still is you know having a two-parent household above socioeconomics, above race, above faith, above all of these different things that are different levels of import. Two-parent household is still the number one mm. indicator of success, mentally, physically, all the above, for growing into you know young adulthood for yes. children. And part of that is, let's say, the benefit of, let's say, even if you know, you're in a conflictual marriage, even if you're not happy, even if you're not doing a great job of it, even that gives them two different ways of looking at things, two different perspectives, something to kind of measure off of versus, you know, the one-parent household is you have one, there's one right way of doing things. There's, there's one way, and so you're always looking for the one-way solution, always looking for the, okay. the one thing to align with rather than the beneficial of our brain being able to think of, this is a way, but there's two different ways. There's more than one option here. I can okay. look at things a little bit different than you know a unilateral type of decision. Okay. 
And so there's that benefit. And so for, let's say for the average, the, you know, the middle of the bell curve, well, it, it's beneficial for women to say, okay, where is, you know, my spouse maybe more, more stoic, more calm in situation, able to look at things more factually. There's a benefit to that. Okay. And a drawback, sure. Okay. And for men to be able to say, like, yeah, no, I, I want, you know, the spouse that sees things that I don't, that is more sensitive to problems before they become catastrophic, that I, I tell husbands all the time, one of the worst things you can hope for is when your spouse goes silent. You have about like five seconds of, okay, great, I must be doing everything right before you realize that <laughs> a lack of complaints is not a good thing. That just means that she's not talking to you. And that's not initially a great thing. So the, like the at least I can work with couples that are in conflict. That's not okay. fun or ideal, but at least in conflict, you can adjust and get better and, and, and you can manipulate and maneuver aggression and frustration into something healthier. Okay. The silent treatment is the worst. That's essentially, for, especially say. for women, that's, that's one foot mentally and emotionally out the door. Oh. And so I would say adjusting anger and frustration is infinitely easier than trying to break inertia, trying okay. to get an apathetic person back in. Because once we're at that point, it's like, okay, does something good, I don't care. Does something bad, I don't care. I am just indifferent to all of it. Yeah. As soon as we've gotten there, that is almost impossible to pull somebody back from. Well, I, I believe it. And there's there's just two points I want to make, and, and I don't even know if they're accurate, but I think they are because I've read them from other people. But it's a lot easier to go from one kind of passion to another kind of passion mm-hmm. than it is to go from apathy to passion. I would agree and with that. And that's, that's what you just said, if I understand. And then the second thing is, is when it comes to – uh, marriage. I I just in the last episode I mentioned John Gottman, sure. who did the Love Lab for yep. fifty years and mm-hmm. still does it. I think even though he's elderly, and they found what they called the Four Horsemen of mm-hmm. the Apocalypse for marriage, and they could listen to a couple talk for ten minutes. And they could predict with, I think, 95% accuracy who is going to stay together and who is going to get divorced. Yep. And uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is because you just mentioned silent treatment, and that mm-hmm. was one of their four yep. horsemen. That along yeah, the stonewalling. With, yeah, that along with excessive criticism, excessive contempt, or excessive defensiveness. Mm-hmm. And they have an antidote for all of these things. They do. You know. And things to work on and bids for attention because um, not every bid works. Not every humorous uh, anecdote or attempt of kind of like humor hits every time. Um, and so they do have a lot of way measuring the different markers of conversation, of interplay. And there's a lot of, let's say, emotional depth to that. But I think one of the things that they kind of look at, one of the things I find very fascinating is, let's say, that not – not that we, we have the same way of doing it, but the different ways that men and women express emotions. Okay. Um, because, again, the more masculine side would be, to, let's say, to be able to stow our emotions, to not deal with them, to be more um, reserved on that, which sometimes just comes out as, like, anger, irritability, stonewalling, right. a lot of, like, just the, the, right. the indifference. Um, and from an evolutionary psychology point of view, I mean, that was beneficial in a lot of cases. Agreed. Because, like, let's say we're out there, we're hunting the animal, but the animal is also violent, and it's got teeth, and it's got claws. It's probably good to put your emotions on hold. Well, hyper-compassion would be like, oh, we can't hurt this poor animal. We'll, right. we'll just starve. <laughs> right. Now we're going to starve. That's not ideal. Yeah, I, I guess we're all going to be vegans now. But <laughs> what if we're Eskimos and there's no plants? You know, well, then we probably need to kill some animals so that we can have some meat, you know. Fair so. point. So uh, yeah, I think there's a, uh, there's a certain misunderstanding or misnomer around like men and women being better or worse with emotions. I think that women tend to skew more emotional as far as like expressive and um, kind of on the more um, neurotic side of let's say negative emotion, understanding and expression. 
But that doesn't necessarily always equate to clarity as okay. far as being able to express it well. And so I think that men and women can actually benefit and be more effective when it comes to in concert with each other. Oh, I'm for women, it's being able this. to... For women to be able to, let's say, for lack of a way of putting it, kind of sift through the details and get down to the core of what matters. Not okay. to hint at things, not to say you should know me by now, not to say, oh, you'll figure it out, oh, you should just you know guess or whatever that is, but just to be, let's say, you know, more scripturally, biblically speaking, just be you know respectful and direct and be able to just say what it is okay. rather than hint at it. Okay. And for men, it's being able to, let's say, let our guard down to, let's say, put down the spear and axe and all that kind of stuff, come home and actually be gentle and soft where appropriate and okay. be able to be more aggressive were necessary. Okay. And so for men, it's being able to just express it at all and get away from just anger and being able to stow it all the time. Okay. For women, it's being able to be more clear, more, let's say, direct with what the problem is, not saying everything connects to everything. It's, everything is horrible and bad and all is terrible. It's this thing that you did the other day bothered me. Okay. It's very different than everything about you bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. I can't change everything about me, but I can work on that one specific concern you have. Okay. So, yeah, I suppose if somebody comes in with a list of your 83 flaws or whatever, that could be just a little too much. Oh, there's a, yeah, I had a funny conversation with my wife a couple months ago, just around that same thing of like okay. being very appreciative of her clarity. Okay. Because um, I, could, I could tell she's upset about something. But for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what that was. And so I was, okay. going, I was racking my brain of like the, you know, 15 different things I possibly could have done to okay. bother her. And it could have been something separate of me, fair enough. Um, but once the kids were down, once we're kind of by ourselves, like, hey, this thing you did the other day bothered me. I was like, oh, okay. That's fair, valid. I can understand that. It's okay. not a big deal. But I remember saying thank you. It's like, okay, of the 15 different things I came up with, that was on the list. <laughs> I was thinking of all these other things I failed on, messed up, didn't do quite right, maybe made a mistake on. And she did the grace and dignity of just saying, Oh, yeah, no, all those things are fine. I get that. Not a big deal. I understand what you're working on there. That's not a problem. It was this one thing, okay. the 16th of my 15, okay. that she commented. I was like, oh, okay, well, I can work on that. That's, that's absolutely. I'm happy to fix that. Thank you for telling me. I'm willing to do that. Mm. Otherwise, I would have been doing 15 other things for weeks at a time, not hitting the mark, not really doing trying what she needed. Guess. Trying to get And so I had just out. tremendous appreciation for my wife just saying, this thing, I don't think you did it very well. Okay. Great. That's extremely helpful okay. rather than trying to guess at it for a long period of time. Okay. So I, I really want to recap just to make sure that I understand. So you're saying if men have a gigantic emotional thing to work on, it's probably to actually let their guard down and to express themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and if women have a gigantic thing to work on, it's to probably narrow down what it is they're upset over uh, and be able to express that one or two things in a very, very clear and direct way uh, without like beating around the bush. More or less, yes. Okay, okay, okay. And so are, again, there's are, a benefit these... for both to work with each other. It's kind of the point that, you know, men and women are complementary in that way. Okay. So then are there, are there other major things that men are prone to do or women are prone to do that, that play into this relationship dynamic? Um, so I guess this kind of goes back a little bit into just like general terminology because yeah, then yeah. we talked about women a little bit. So for men, men tend to be much more, let's say, um, able to kind of compartmentalize things and, and want to, like, let's say, be more fact-based and structural. So right. they tend to go into more fields that are um, skewed towards like data. being able to accomplish yeah, data or some sort of things. task or some service. Um, that oftentimes are much more able to be scaled up. You can do more of the process if you automate them and are spending time in the number side of things. Um, and so there is kind of a, 
a certain benefit of that, being able to kind of shut things down and focus on a task and get something done, which is great. I think there's a, a wonderful need and skill to be able to, let's say, see a task from start to finish. Uh-huh. The struggle is oftentimes, let's say, slowing things down to see what we're doing in the meantime. What uh, <laughs> What is the wake of our progress if we become too stubbornly committed to something? Are right. we, let's say, missing out on the progress, the process itself? Yeah, and, and maybe we become so fixated on achieving a goal that we never enjoy getting there. Mm-hmm. I, this is a silly example, but I had a friend back in college who said it took him a while to realize that he could enjoy reading the whole book. He loved to read, and he was a writer, uh, and so he'd read a fantasy novel, and he'd say that you know he was just basically always waiting for the conclusion mm-hmm. of the thing and just sort of like battling to get through the rest of the book oftentimes, the 400-page yep. book. And then one day it dawned on him, Hey, wait, this middle chapter is actually really fun. It's excellent. It's enjoyable. I, I could enjoy the whole process. I don't just have to rush to the end. Mm-hmm. Because if I could go back and speak to his earlier self, I'd be like, well, why don't you just read the last chapter of every book and just skip all the other chapters then if that's what makes you happy? But mm-hmm. I guess just maybe that obsessive focus on getting to the goal and we're not going to be happy until we reach the goal. And that would be, that the, be again, the idea of like toxic masculinity, the idea of like, you know, the the end justifies the means, right? So until you've done the thing, until something's accomplished, until I get to the end, until I see the the final product, I can't really measure the progress or like whether it's a good decision through, along the way or not. And so that would be another indication of, let's say, that unhealthy tint towards like completion at all cost okay. without necessarily thinking about the person or the person's I'd want to be around after I'm completed with whatever the task right. is. Right. I mean, I could become a workaholic with that, too. Mm-hmm. I could just be so focused on work all the time sure. that relationships go completely out the window. Yeah. Or in terms of, let's say, parenting, again, the idea sometimes, like, there's the balance that I have for most men. I'm not saying they all do it terribly, mm-hmm. but I would say it certainly skews in my practice pretty heavily towards the... In in good ways, sometimes it's more healthily done. Okay. But for men, it's like, yeah, we got to get my kid to 18. And so I'll ask the, you know, the, the male in this case, like, but what about after that? Right. So you get them to 18. Great. Right. Awesome. Fantastic. Right. They're still but alive. Is it, but is that at all costs? Is it like, I, I don't care how, if they like me or not. I don't care if we have a relationship or not. I need to get them out of my house. <laughs> and so I usually ask them, like, okay, well, do you ever want them to visit? Yeah. Because sure, you can get them to 18. And to some degree, that's not the most challenging part of it. The question is, you ever, you want like just at all costs, no relationship with them, just make them successful and then... But then what? Yeah, There's right. something that exists after that. And usually for the, the the mothers in this case, like, no, we actually want them to come back. We want them to visit. We want them to still kind of like us to yeah. some degree. Yeah. Um, and so that's usually where I kind of get a lot of men. It's like, okay, getting them to 18, that is your job. I can respect that. I totally understand. Is there anything beyond that? What Would you like to want them to come visit you? Would you want to have some right. relationship with them, something to talk about? Or is it just, I need them out of my house? Okay. Okay. So I, I guess what I'm hearing is, is uh, a problem that some men uh, have to really kind of think about. Who knows? Maybe some women too. But mm-hmm. primarily men is, am I too monofocused on maybe one goal? And this is bad because then you're letting everything else slide. You're letting everything else go to hell, mm-hmm. essentially. So... Yeah. Okay. And, and then I'm going to assume well. the counterpart for women then is it might be my focus is entirely on relationships and then mm-hmm. goals completely. What's a goal? Who cares? Yeah. So we have the you know 30 year olds that are still in the mom's basement type of relationship, okay. right? Where it's like I sh- I want to make sure they're fully prepared. I want to make sure they're okay. I want to make sure they're happy. I want to make sure that I don't want them to do anything uncomfortable to really go out there and fail because that would be terrible. So I'll take care of everything. Mm-hmm. I'll do their laundry for them. I'll you know continue to over function for my child and you know pamper them into oblivion. 
in rather than let's say there's a a, a term called denesting, which is a, a concept of um, okay. It's in reference to birds, the idea that you know when when the baby birds are first born, the adult birds will like tear out their feathers and put it within the nest to make it more comfortable and, okay. and easier for the babies as they're growing their own feathers and their own okay. comfortability. And then as they get older, as they start maturing, the, the adults will rip all the feathers out of the nest and make it as Whoa. uncomfortable as it can possibly be okay. to convince the younger birds to fly off and do their own thing. Okay, I haven't read this in Nietzsche, but I had a friend uh, tell me this, that this is in Nietzsche someplace. He said, when your friend is sick, you know, you should make his bed for him, but you should make it hard. You should make it a field cot. Mm-hmm. You know, you should make it relatively uncomfortable because you don't want him lying around in that bed all day long. Mm-hmm. I I don't, it's kind of on that same vein. I forgot who I was talking to. Um, I think somebody like gone to the hospital, whether for having a child or like for some surgery. And I, I hear everyone, you know, complain, rightfully so, that, you know, when you're in the hospital, like they keep bugging you and poking and prodding you and they come in all the time and they make it as like uncomfortable as possible. And I remember thinking, it's like, well, of course, they don't want you to stay there permanently and just pamper you into oblivion. Like, right. They're not trying to make you comfortable or let's say feel good. They're trying to get you up and moving in. They're trying to heal you and get you back into life. Yes. And so, yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense that there would be an incentive for them to I'm going to say not make it terrible, but certainly not make you too comfortable either. Okay. Now, in your work then as a therapist, when you are dealing with a couple, and uh, I don't know, maybe the man is displaying some of these, uh, I don't know, excessive masculine traits, like I just want to get the kid to 18. Sure. And maybe mom is displaying some of these excessive feminine traits where it's like, hey, I don't care if they move out at all. They could be 35. I'm still going to nurture them and love them and keep them from harm. How do you... How do you get them to a more normal position? And also, don't people tend to backslide? Oh, for sure. I mean, bad habits die hard. So I think that's that's the challenge of kind of like getting them to see like, hey, what, what would this actually turn into? So a lot of times, let's say for, for parenting is a good example of that. That's the focus of it. A lot of times it's we're, we're so focused at the tasks at hand, the stressors of the moment, we're not thinking of the consequence of, okay, what if we continue down this path? Right. And so a lot of my job is let's say, okay, Let's figure out what would this return into. If we keep treating it like this, if we keep going along this path and constantly over-functioning for your child as they get older, is that just going to naturally get better or are you going to change something? Because they're probably getting used to that. They're probably benefiting from that. Children tend to... I'm not against children by any means, but I kind of jokingly <laughs> say to couples that you know, children, their their job, their goal is to pit you against each other. Okay, that's, that's their job. That's the kid's job. Yeah, and okay. I, I get there's good things about that. I mean, part of that is let's say the the child's need to be able to you know how to get their needs met and be able to you know know that there's different options and going to different things. So I think there's a benefit of that. And the job of the parents is to not let that happen, to make sure that we're on the same page, that we are united in that, and okay. how to show them how to negotiate and and to work with your peer group. But children, yeah, their job is to pit you against each other, even okay. the best case scenarios, because, well, we don't want them to be, let's say, completely like obedient to a degree. I think there's a spectrum there that we don't want them to be so obedient to where they're kind of a yes person when they okay. get older to where any authority whatsoever they're going to agree with and not question at all. Right. Okay, well, that's not ideal. Yeah, we those also... got called the good Germans, like after the war. Ooh, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like, oh, let's just go along with the system. Yep, so that's, that's the risk we run there. Or, but we also don't want them to go to the other extreme, so so rebellious, they have just no rules at all. They're just kind of able to be all over the place to where when they get into the real world, they're just subject to the absolute worst extremes of the law okay. and just other people's perception of them without having that be somewhat curbed. Okay. But either extreme, let's say 
too rebellious and rambunctious and able to do whatever they want, but also, let's say, too pampered and, and comforted, the extreme of either one of those leads to a pretty miserable existence. Okay. And so part of working with parents is, okay, no extreme tends to work. We're, we're, we're creatures of moderation. We do well with a sense of balance. Okay. Anything too extreme can be particularly unhealthy, even yeah. if the intent, even if the desire is good. Right. When it's not implemented effectively, if we're not, say, measuring the effect, the impact of what we're doing, say the road to hell is paved with them, let's say. Good intentions is a risky concept if we're not measuring how it's being handled. I use the example of charity as a good one. Okay, okay. Because there's a certain, let's say, anonymity to, like, charity versus, like, giving to somebody you know. That's true. So if you give to charity, I mean, there's a good feeling to that, and to some degree, you don't know how it's being used, which is risky, don't get me wrong. It's a little risky. But you're, you're giving it hope with good intent and there's credibility behind it. It's a good feeling for you and you're not necessarily having to measure and monitor them to make sure they're doing it well. But let's say you give something to somebody that you care about and you have some long-term relationship with. Mm-hmm. So giving is inherently a good thing. Uh-huh. But once we know how the gift is used, once we understand kind of what it's used for, oh, it can relate. There's there's some moral culpability there to what you do next. So if you find out your child is using all this money, let's say not to invest themselves to go to school, but is you know buying drugs and harming themselves, right? Well, then we have to be very critical on do we give more. That's right. That's right. Because well, if they're because investing, you're, great. You're, you're creating something worse than a spoiled brat. I mean, <laughs> you're creating like an addict or you're creating like a completely lazy, indolent person. And, and you're creating that. And that's not good. Mm-hmm. You know, back when I was in graduate school, I was about 23. And I lived next door to a homeless shelter. And on Sunday mornings, I would walk to church. And it was about a six-block walk or so. And there was this guy, and he seemed like a nice enough guy, but his name was Rufus. And every time I ran into him, I'd say, Rufus, how are you doing? And he'd say, I'm hurting really bad. And, uh, like, I think the first time maybe I gave him about 10 bucks, something like that. This was on a Sunday morning at about 9 o'clock. And uh, then I saw him after church, and he was totally drunk. And then I thought, that is sad. I wonder how that happened. Mm -hmm. And then I realized... I gave him 10 bucks, and then he went out and drank it, you know? And then I thought, this is my fault. You know, my charity was a complete misfire. You know, what I should have done was I maybe should have bought him a sandwich or, you know, something along those lines. And so I I guess what I'm trying to say is, and, and I've had people argue with me over this. They say, hey, listen, when you give that $10, you are a good person, and you don't have to worry about what they're going to do with it afterward. And... I personally think I do have to worry about what they're going to do with it afterward mm-hmm. because well, fool me I don't... once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Like right. once you're aware of something, you can't go back. Right. Yeah, sadder but wiser, I guess. And yeah. so then after that, then then my philosophy has been, well, if I need to carry water bottles around in my car mm-hmm. so that I can hand them out to people at intersections occasionally or or fruit bars or whatever. But I, I just don't want to give people money because I worked at a homeless shelter for a summer. In graduate school, I did that a little bit later, and I just got to know hundreds and hundreds of homeless people up close Mm -hmm. and personal. And some of the homeless were down on their luck, and they were homeless maybe through no fault of their own. And I I don't want to pass judgment on people one way or the other. But I also learned that I just personally would prefer to give food and water because— it's really, really hard to harm yourself with a bottle of water or, you know, a fruit bar. But right. but if I give you money, then I don't know what's going to happen with that. But I have seen some pretty bad results that mm-hmm. I don't approve of. And like you say, I guess once your eyes are open, they're open. 
Yeah, that's kind of one of my favorite. I'm kind of slim at paraphrasing, I suppose, but one of my favorite passages, like the idea of Ecclesiastes and the okay. idea, of like you know, to increase knowledge or to create like awareness is increase sorrow. So the more we know about things, the more it forces us to actually have to confront, let's say, some of the the harder aspects of life. The more considerate ways in which we help somebody, if we find out that what we're giving is being abused, doesn't mean we're in the wrong. It just means that there's a lack of knowledge. There's some shame to be had there for yeah. sure. But fault implies something a little bit different where like uh-huh. nothing can grow from that. It's okay, now that I know that, what do I do differently? How That's do I improve right. that? How do I mature that in some healthy way? Um, I think that is that is a challenge. It's not to not help people. It's just that to be conscientious and actually do it well, it's not just giving what they say they want or right. the immediate need being met. There has to be a, a more holistic approach and even from a... I, I put it this way a lot of times, like, so the, the golden rule, right? I kind of I'll, I'll poke on this, but it's fun to use this in, in terms that are, let's say, much more intimate. Okay. So, so the golden rule being, you know, to love others yourself. Right. Pretty self-explanatory, yeah. pretty yeah. easy. That's a pretty Do unto others simple. as you would have them do unto you. Certainly. And it's, it sounds pretty straightforward and easy. Okay. Just treat people nicely, let's right. say. Yeah. But it's interesting if you actually apply that to a specific person okay. versus just a general, you know, love your neighbor, right? Right, right. Because if your neighbor is specific, that doesn't, like, the etymology of that actually goes much deeper than just be nice to people. Because as human beings, we certainly have potential for compassion and love. But one thing we don't know is how. Yeah, to love it's somebody the specifics else. that make things much, much more interesting. Yeah. So to love somebody as you want to be loved, well, if you apply that, let's say we reverse that and say, okay, well, how do you want to be loved? Well, to, for me, as an individual, to be loved is very specific. What I like, what I don't like, my preferences, all of that stuff is uniquely mine. And the only people that know how to do that are the people that I tell and explain to and, and bring them into that knowledge and you know give them some idea of my preferences, what I like, give them feedback on what works and what doesn't for me. They only love me as well as I allow them to, as much as I know of myself. Okay. And the same is true the other direction, that you know, to love somebody as yourself requires a lot of questioning, a lot of empathy, a lot of interest, a lot of taking the time to understand that person better. Because if you don't know something, and this mm-hmm. is a psychological okay. problem, if you don't know something, you cannot care about it. Okay. So let's I, say somebody's living two streets down from you, and I'm going totally through a hard ignorant. time, I'm totally and you know nothing ignorant. about it. You cannot care. Okay. Not okay. that you're incapable, not that you could not care. Okay. But you can't. There's nothing you don't know. As soon as it's brought to your attention, I as soon care. as you're aware of it, some degree, as soon as something of knowledge passes your mind, well, then you can decide what you want to do about that, how much do you care, what that okay. would look like. Okay. And so that happens even, even with a person sleeping next to you. Okay. That if, if they don't, you don't tell you know, what's going on... You can see they're hurting, you might tell they're upset about something, but until they deign to tell you what the specifics are, how big it is, what the problem is, how they understand it, even were you to guess, and this is a fascinating part of, let's say, the authenticity of emotion, Okay. even if you were to guess somebody else's emotion, until they're able to accept that, understand of themselves, do some self-introspective work, they'll reject it. Okay. It's like the idea of saying, oh, you must be so embarrassed. No, I'm not. I feel terrible. Don't talk to me anymore. They walk away. Or, no, don't get mad. Well, me, I'm going to be upset with you for how dare you assume I'm going to be mad. When we try to claim somebody else's emotions for them, we tend to reject it. Oh, okay. So I, okay, see if I understand. So I don't know. You got John and Susan. They're married. And mm-hmm. let's say that she knows something's bothering him. And then either through observation or intuition, she actually pinpoints it. She's like, well, you're upset because you got passed over for this promotion at work. And 
But if he hasn't taken the time to figure that out, then maybe he knows something's bothering him, but he doesn't know what. He's mad at everything. And so then maybe he yells at her and says, well, I'm not mad about the promotion at work. <laughs> you know, there you go again, assuming things. The house is falling down. The kids are doing this and you right. didn't do this. All those things might be, let's say, tangentially annoying and frustrating. Sure. Right. But if somebody else claims that before, you're ready to accept that. Okay. So she might be right. But he doesn't know she's right, and so therefore he's going to snap at her. Wow, that's really interesting. And that's why I find there's that benefit of, let's say, the collaboration, because you could say, like, you know, men and women have, let's say, a certain shorthand. I, I heard a TED talk years ago. Okay. Simple, but it was kind of it was cute and funny. The idea of like, you know, okay. there are they use the example of like, you know, blue and, and pink earpieces and mouthpieces to like where if women are talking to women, there's no translation needed. Like what you're hearing, what you're saying is usually relatively understood. But then you try to like, you know, and men can do the same thing. They tend to understand each other, you know, mm-hmm. pretty easily. But you might throw, be able to communicate with a glance. Yeah, doesn't take a lot. But throw the opposite sexes into the mix together and, you know, what is being said is being interpreted by a fundamentally different person and then what you're hearing is being filtered in a different way. And so there's so many different things that are being missed in what's said and heard and understood Hmm. to where, you know, just because we we share words with somebody on a superficial level, just because we share information does not necessarily always equate to sharing the meaning of that information, so one of my favorite questions as a couple, when I'm kind of like maybe three sessions okay. in and I'm okay. diving into some depth of looking at the benefits of both sides and how they're allowed to be different. In fact, difference is good. It yeah, brings yeah, out yeah. the best in each other. I'm going to assume that's why they got married in the first place. Yeah. At least Something about them was exciting and yeah. new and different. Yeah. And we need to keep fostering that. That's a good thing that yeah. we're different. If we're the same, one of us is irrelevant. <laughs> but I, one of my favorite questions to ask them, I usually, I, funnily enough, like sometimes couples get heated by this, but I ask it hopefully to be genuinely innocuous and not that big of a deal. But I'll ask couples oftentimes, okay, is it possible that when it comes to your household, your stuff, that you might have a different definition of the word clean? Uh, okay. And I don't think I've ever once had a couple say, oh, we're totally good on that. We agree on everything. It's super easy. Our house is spick and span or dirty as we want it to be. Like, I've never once met a couple who's like, oh, we agree on that definition. Implicitly, we've never had to talk about it super easy. Usually I get like either some like, you know, sidelong glances or some humorous like laughter. I'm like, okay. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> what are the biggest problems that you've seen that come up or just, I guess maybe I should say the most common problems? Let me, let me rephrase. Yeah, what are the most common problems? Hmm. Like kind of predictable. Well, so what's funny about that is that's – I like the way you worded that because I think that is probably, ironically speaking, probably the most apt way of putting it okay. is that problems are common. Okay. So I, I do actually appreciate yeah. that because yeah. Yeah. rarely I would say if ever if I dealt with a couple that, you know, in the relationship broke up, had, had a falling out because of a singular event – Oh, okay. Now, so I'm not saying that singular events don't happen that are, let's say, the catalyst for the fall or that something terrible happens as a culmination. But usually okay. couples are pretty healthy, even significantly like harmful things that happen, even some terrible things if we're willing to work on and have a good baseline are tolerable, if not fun. Okay. But where couples lose each other is not so much in the, the extremity, it's in the, the mundanity. We lose each other in everyday life. We're constantly drifting apart from each other, emotionally oh. speaking, if we're not constantly trying to you know, retool that and bring things back together Are, are you regularly. saying like the natural <clears throat> tendency in a couple might be to drift apart? 100% yes. Oh, wow. Okay, that's depressing. <laughs> but but I guess the antidote though is fun because whenever you have, I mean, I, I know this from friendship, I know this from just life, but just whenever you 
get back together and you have long conversations and you find out what the other person is thinking and you really listen and you start telling each other jokes and mm-hmm. like, I don't know, sharing your hearts or whatever, then it's very fun and it's very exciting. So I guess the the problem is that we drift apart, but then the antidote is actually fun. But in that drift apart, I would agree. There's something depressing. Don't get me wrong about yeah, that. But yeah. But there's also so much opportunity to be had there as well. Yeah. Because again, it's that like when we notice like, oh, I feel disconnected, right? Nobody has to be at fault for that. We could even understand like with a friend that drifts apart. It's like, yep, they have their life. They're doing their thing. I'm here. But that, that, that yearning, that desire to stay connected is like, you know what? We should get together. We should connect. We should do something to reach out to that person. Okay. The same thing happens with the people in your own household. Okay. That entropy, the the you know the decay over time. Let's say as time yeah. goes on, things are just the natural state of everything. Over time, is to separate, to to fall apart, to to go into disarray. It's like a law of physics. I Correct. can't remember. It's like thermodynamics mm-hmm. or something like that. It's like the first or the second law of thermodynamics is that uh, things move toward maximum entropy, yep. and they also move toward uh, uh, least amount of energy. <laughs> so, so in other words, like uh, we're prone. And see, I mean, they were talking about physical objects, but I think it applied to people. So Agreed. we're prone to laziness, low energy, and chaos. Well, think about where relationships tend to start, as an example, and then we'll go back to entropy's okay. natural okay. order of where I tend to deal with people, where people enter my life. Okay. Um, so the natural state, like, so you're first starting to date somebody, let's uh-huh. say. There's planning. Well, everything is is fun and new and exciting and, and interesting, and we're going out of our comfort zone. We're experimenting. Every question is new and unique, and we're we're in this, you know, phase where there's high anxiety because, okay. well, we don't know if they're going to come to the next date, so we want to do as best as we can and get as much out of it as possible, and there's, there's, there's a pull to that right? There's a appropriate amount of fear of I don't work hard at this, it might not go to the next step. We're doing all the opposite of, of the natural tendency. We're going opposite of lazy. We're going opposite yep. of low energy. Instead, yep. we're doing a lot of planning. Mm-hmm. We're, we're trying to do something new and fun and exciting. <laughs> so then let's say we, we fast forward that. Let's say we're, we're with each other for a while. There's more commitment, which is great. Okay. But there's a, there's a double-edged sword to that. Okay. So let's say when we're committed to each other, we have a long-term relationship, there's a, a risk of going from comfortability to complacency. Right. To where it's, yeah, I'm I have so you. comfortable well, with you yeah, what, that once I put I get done on with this 90 project. pounds. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm not trying as hard. So people tend to feel deceived because, well... We're not putting our best foot forward in the same way all the time. We're not. We're, we're getting to level of comfortability, which yeah. is truly a compliment. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But the well, problem is over time. Don't things... compliment me so much. Correct. Well, think about that again with the term of clean. That let's say you have a friend over who comes over all the time, somebody you're okay. very close to. At some point, it's, it's not going to be worthwhile to have to clean your house so tidy. Like when you have people that are very close to you, you kind of risk a little bit of them seeing you in your natural habitat because there's a comfortability, there's a compliment there that yeah, yeah you can see me unkempt a little bit. Yep. But if you're meeting somebody for the very first time, for trying to win somebody over, it's a very new relationship, well, of course you're going to tidy up in a way that you would not normally do. And so there there certainly is, a, to your point, an over-compliment of being, letting yourself go too much. Right. So that's usually the, the problem as time goes on. Is we get complacent. It's like, yeah, well, we, we got the person, you know, game over. We got married. So I guess the chase stops. Right. And then it goes down to just the the functional relationships. I think I've heard you talk about before the um, 
I love the example, like the Aristotle, like hierarchy of friendships. Oh, like yeah, the three yeah, different yeah. ones. Yeah. And so uh, to put that in perspective of marriage, I'll often use the example of like, so when you're first dating somebody, you're kind of in that fun. It's, it's enjoyable. Uh-huh. You're in the, uh-huh. the relationship of on that middle rung, let's say. Yeah. And you're trying to decipher between is it going to be somebody who you constantly have to like save them and take care of them? Or is it somebody that, you know, you expect to do everything for you? Or is it something that is challenging, something virtuous, something more profound okay. than that, right? Okay. Yeah, there was like three kinds of relationships. Just to briefly review, there's your uh-huh. fun friend, uh, there's your work friend, and then there is your virtuous friend who mm-hmm. makes you into a better person. And I can't remember which one did you say is the best? Virtuous is the the highest, let's say, uh-huh. um, desirable type of relationship. Okay. okay. And so the same thing is true. What happens though, like, so to use that hierarchy, so we enter into fun, uh-huh. let's say, we're passionate, it's fun, interesting, we're getting to know each other. Yeah. If we're not careful, what tends to happen pretty quickly as time goes on within the context of like a committed relationship is that it devolves into utility, into okay. the, to kind the of work. work relationship to where it's we got to pay the bills, got to take care of the kids, got to take care of the house, all good things, all necessary sure, sure, things. Sure. But if we're not trying to spice things up, trying to go on dates, trying to re-engage each other, try to show excitement towards what we're developing, most couples, again, when they come to me, the most common term that I tend to hear for couples that I work with is we feel more like roommates yeah. than spouses. We function well. We take care of the stuff effectively. Okay. But there's no passion towards the person. No We're not passion. engaging with each other. Loveless marriage. And, bored. Yep. Which I, I honestly, my theory on drama is that <laughs> people create drama because they're bored. And hmm. I could be wrong. But that's one of my theories based on high school students that I've associated with. And after 20 years of being around them, just one day it struck me that why is it that the kid who is taking three AP classes and is on a champion sports team, uh, girls basketball or whatever, she has no drama. And then I realized she doesn't have time. She's got too many other things going on. But meanwhile, these other two over here, Lacey, Pacey, Tracy, Macy, and their various friend group, you know, Spacey, who forgot to show up, they basically, um, they have dramas all over the place. They're worried about what she said, about what he said, about what they said, about this other person gave me a look this way and I can't even believe it. And Mm. are those two breaking up? I don't even know them, but it looks like they're breaking up. There was just like a lot of drama. Mm. and, And I was thinking, well, you don't have anything to do, and True. that's that's because you're bored. Yeah, you're and living so you, through other people. Yeah, you gotta you gotta create something. True. You know, hmm. I like that. So I, I don't know. Example. So so getting back to the marriages, then I I don't know. Okay, so that's the biggest. Well, problem. to your point, is I think people that's... come in and they say we're bored, or it's loveless, <laughs> or passionless, or is that the biggest? Um, usually the underlying cause, like usually okay. the unfortunate thing is like, so that's, that's relatively commonplace, let's say, but even the couples that come in, like something like terrible happened, there's some sort of, let's say abusive tendencies and affairs, something maybe more significant, yeah, more traumatic. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Like, do you see that too? <clears throat> I do. On, okay. on occasion, I absolutely do. Like physical abuse or like, uh, or like. Less often, although not, like, not something that is impossible, but like usually that's something you'd almost like, do individual work on. Okay. Um, there's, there's ways of, you know, um assessing for less appropriateness of couples counseling and usually there's some pretty significant areas of trauma that you have to postpone that until they've done some significant individual work first that's okay a lot of going to detail okay um but i will say um so even if they've done some individual work and they've recognized like some some significant hurt or trauma or frustration or disconnect has happened 
a lot of the struggle for couples is this doesn't come out of nowhere. Okay. And I think that's usually the part that you, they can usually get on board with to some degree. I think it takes a little bit of time. It's like, even if this were not to have happened, does that mean that your marriage was flawless and perfect beforehand? No, because this happened. Something was missing. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not specific behaviors people can do to break trust. Okay. But trust is always eroding over time. The, the more as time goes on, we're just kind of missing mm. things, assuming things. We get into this this mode of, well, we don't need to talk about this or this is off, the, off you know, off limits to talk about. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. These topics, they're forbidden. And that's sometimes the hardest thing to break through for any couple. And the reason why I say that is um, that I've had couples that have gone through some really traumatic things that okay. have you know chosen to work on it, chosen to overcome that. They have the will, the desire to change, and they were able to do some tremendous work. Okay. On the other end of that spectrum, I have had some fascinating couples that have come in. I remember one to where like they were court mandated to come in. They came to like literally one session. Holy they God. were not in conflict. They were a bit older, and they're just like, yeah, like yeah, we, we're, we're friendly. We just don't want to be married anymore. Like they just told us we had to come to check off the box. We don't want to be in this relationship anymore. Nothing bad has happened. We're just we're not into it. We're not wanting to work on it. And at some point, like if you're not interested, if you're just to the point of apathy and okay. indifference. There's not really a lot I can do to like, you know, try to create no, passion for you in no, the moment. No, you can't um, make well, you can make somebody care, but not in a positive way. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You can threaten them. I mean, but you don't want to do that. Yeah. So and So I think that is kind of the <clears throat> the, the the challenge of trying to, let's say, figure out where people are starting. So usually when people okay. come into me, yeah, they, they probably got to a point, let's say, ideally that they've noticed they're kind of slipping or drifting apart, but no significant break has happened yet. The problem for some couples is like so a significant break happened. That doesn't mean that the 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 victim of that was necessarily innocent entirely. Right. And some couples do a better job of that. Okay, like what what did I do to push this person away? Or okay. What was I missing? How can we both be different going forward? How can we you know make this a, a catalyst for our relationship to be even stronger than it was before? Because there was some you know flaw in the system, some chink in the armor somewhere that led to this. That led to this. So that even if this hadn't have happened. It probably would have happened sooner or later. At some point, okay. something was missing in our desire and our working with each other. Okay. Because if you're generally working with each other, the odds of some significant flaw happening is extraordinarily unlikely. Right. The whole system's not going to blow up. We're not going to have Chernobyl where we have a big meltdown if we've got a whole bunch of systems in place. I mean, uh, the chance yep. of that happening are, are <clears throat> I mean, it, it could always happen, right? But it's close to zero, basically, because if, if we have like all kinds of talking going on and and there's no forbidden topics and all of that, then there's really no reason mm -hmm. to have a, you know, unprecedented nuclear disaster, mm -hmm. you know, that potentially could poison 50 million people. There's just no need for... Um, okay, so let, let me... I'll pause there for a second, yeah, and I'll let do. you go if that's please okay. Please do. So yeah. I want you to go with that, but I have kind okay. of a funny analogy to go along with that. Okay. That is completely topical, which is fascinating. So Chernobyl, right? You yeah. mentioned that. So, I don't know why that always became my go-to analogy. I, I'm older, and mm -hmm. so I remember when that happened, and oh. it just became my constant go-to analogy for, yep. for big problems. But that's the interesting thing, because you actually, like, that that metaphor right there is almost perfect, hilariously applicable, let's okay. say. Okay. I, I have some, long story short, I have some family members, some people I know personally that have, like, actually visited, like, from some of the few Americans Whoa. that have ever been to Chernobyl. Oh, I want to go. And one of the most fascinating things about that that I, I don't think I knew about is, like, everyone's like, oh, yeah, there's, there's 
bound to happen. It's, it's guaranteed any time you know, you're messing with nuclear stuff, it's going to go horribly, horribly wrong. No, that's so not true. But what was interesting was, like, so the family members I went there was like, oh, no, like, most places are, like, way, way, way overdone, like, way over uh-huh. procedural. Chernobyl was one of the ones where, like, there was duct tape and it was, like, jerry-rigged. Right. And, right. like, they were not, there's no oversight. There was nothing to go there. So right. it was prone to happen because, well, nobody cared enough to not let it happen. Well, and, and, and that that's the misconception is that there's so many oversights, so many small things, so many just terribly done things like make this work. Tons of duct tape. That of course it was going to fall apart. Yeah, so like I guess like the comparison with relationships is just all of like the duct tape and all of like the little patches and things like that and but actually so much neglect but there's an extra thing too with Chernobyl that I think is uh, maybe applicable to marriages which is uh, there was a culture where if you came in and said no listen we've got a big problem here you know reactor number four it's ready to go (laughs) it's gonna melt down I mean if you were that person who came in and told the truth then other people would be like, that's about enough of you. You know, and since it was the Soviet system, uh, you know, it's like maybe we'll take you up in the helicopter and push you out, you know. So you get punished for telling the truth. They (laughs) will kill the messenger. (laughs) So and I think that happens in bad relationships all the time. Somebody brings up a major problem. Maybe it's something with the money. Maybe it's with the kids. Maybe it's with the intimate relationship. Maybe it's something with the in-laws. I mean, just some area that looks like a gigantic landmine. Sure. And so it's like, oh, well, we better not talk about that. But then sooner or later, you end up with reactor number four. Yeah. And that's the issue of, like, content versus context. Like, we get lost in the content, like, how it's, like, presented in the moment or what the issue is at hand without going okay. into how we present issues, how we talk about things. There's, we're never going to get to a point in any relationship ever where there won't be problems or things to talk about. Right, right, right. In terms of a lot of couples counseling, it's being able to help them differentiate between what are solvable and perpetual problems. Because mm. there's some problems that are not solvable right. by any means. There are things that you should continue to get better at or worse at. Right. The simple example, we're just out of the holiday season. A great example is in-laws. Yeah. That's a great example. Yeah, you really can't solve. You can't solve in-laws. I suppose you could take the entire family and move to Madagascar. Mm-hmm. But if you do, you're still going to have Zoom calls with the family. True. And then they're going to say things that are going to drive you crazy. So I guess you really can't solve. Well, but even you can't you, solve the in-laws. But again, even if you distance from them, you're, you're losing out on so much let's say, understanding and knowledge of the other person. Because if you cut off from family members yeah. and don't have their influence anymore, well, that's not entirely true either. Because all that's embedded within you. So you're marrying into a family in a metaphorical sense as well as a literal one. Yes. To where, yeah, having in-laws helps like, oh, okay, I see where this comes from. I see what we need to work on. I, I appreciate how far you've come from this person Yeah. versus we cut off from people. Okay, why do you act this way? Why don't you understand the way the world the way I do? You, you act in different values and different priorities than me. Well, of course, because we grew up in a different subculture mm-hmm. that is never going to be the same. So if you cut off the in-laws, you lose a lot of opportunity to understand where this person is coming from, how they process. You lose so much of how to work with this person because okay. you're getting rid of all of that you know, secondary source of information. Okay, okay. And so we don't f- want to do that. We don't want to cut off the in-laws. It's just like any big problem. I guess uh, the answer is to not just like completely obliterate it and cut it off. It's But to somehow 
figure out a way to live with it, cope with it, mm-hmm. discuss it. And get better at, let's say, I would say almost to some degree using some of those conflicts as opportunities to like measure growth, see how well oh. we've done, look at how far okay. we've come. Not to you know say like, oh, you're just like your mother and push them metaphorically <laughs> back into their families. Like, hey, thank you for working on being our family. Thank you for trying things differently. Thanks for collaborating and, and helping me understand you better. Okay. And this is where I come back to like, let's say one of the, the most damaging concepts within relationship, unfortunately, and I say this very much in quotes, is the minute that you, you know, quote unquote, know somebody. Okay. And I say that very much in quotes. Right. Is the minute that you stop trying. Okay, so, that makes sense. So fair enough. Like when you're first dating somebody, you don't know them, so you're asking a lot of questions, but n- there's no amount of question you can ask me first date somebody that will, let's say, remove the need to continue to ask questions. Yes. Maybe not as frequently, maybe not as, you know... Um, you're not getting as much information out of every conversation, but the minute you know somebody, it's the minute you stop asking them questions. So it's yeah. not like, oh, hey, how, like, okay, I know we talked about you going to this job. Are you still liking it? Do you not like it? I know we said on day one you'd enjoy it. Is it still working? Have there been players that have shifted? Have things gotten different over time? Because just like, oh, yeah, well, my wife loves her job. How do I know that without checking in with her on occasion yeah. and figuring out if that's still true or not? Yeah, like where do you – how do you feel about it? Now, mm-hmm. yeah, you liked it last year. <clears throat> or if somebody says, you know, no to something, which is a reasonable answer. You can say okay. no to things. Sure, sure. But if somebody says no, okay, well, is that, you know, hey, do you want to go on a date tonight? Oh, no, I don't want to do that. Okay, well, then I ask. He never wants to go on dates, ever. It's never going to happen again. So <laughs> he just hates that kind of stuff. He doesn't want to spend time with me. I'm just going to spend time with the kids. I'm going to work on this project. I'm just going to go to work because clearly she doesn't want to do things with me. Okay. And so rather than, let's say, having the humility to say, hey, this is kind of what I'm trying to guess here. This is what makes sense to me. This is what you've said. Is that true? It's like, yeah, like, well, he always does this. She never does that. This is the kind of person he is. This is what, what they tend to focus on. The minute that we've fused that, yeah. right? And we, we can't not. We're, we're, we're prejudicial creatures. We tend to um, well, try we, to categorize things any way yeah. that we can. I, I feel, okay, uh, Tony Robbins has got this great thing where he says basically humans have like six core needs, and I don't even know if I'm going to be able to remember them all, but mm-hmm. one of them is certainty, and another one is variety. Uh, and I'll just talk about that briefly, but I guess, yeah, if we think we know somebody, then, well, I'm trying to feed my need for certainty. Maybe I'm the type of person who needs a lot of certainty. Mm-hmm. But obviously the big problem with that is you've just taken the most complex creature in the entire universe, which is another human being who is basically infinite, who there's plenty of things that not even Google knows about you <laughs> or Facebook, you know, sure. with all of their data and algorithms, there are things about yourself that you don't know about yourself. So if the other person just decides, nope, you're a fixed entity, I know everything there is to know about you, you don't even know everything about your dog. How mm-hmm. could you know everything about your spouse? Well, here's the, the scary thing on a psychological perspective of that. Okay. To, to know something. Again, there's okay. a certain comfortability of trying to, to just write something off, to simplify it, to categorize it, and yeah. then separate from it. The, the yeah. idea of certainty. Okay. Certainty is very, very risky in yes. general, but especially with relationships. Yes. Because essentially what you've done is you've you put yourself, the, the, the individual, you put yourself into a no-win situation mm. when you know, quote-unquote, somebody else. Okay. Why, why is it no-win? So I'll put it this way. So a lot of things that we know about somebody dictates how we act around them. So there's not a lot of change. We're just doing the same routines, the same patterns over and over again, and rarely does it get the results we want because we're just playing into that. So okay. let's say we, we presume somebody is in an unpleasant way. They're lazy. They're frustrating. Whatever. Okay. 
Okay, so we, we know that they're that kind of person. So we can relegate ourselves to that, resent them, be frustrated, bitter, not change anything because, well, they're not going to change. Right. So we can sit with that and just be miserably unhappy mm. with the traits that maybe they could change, maybe they couldn't, but we're not even okay. giving them the chance. Yeah. Okay, so that's, we've, that's not we've very closed fun. it off completely. So that's one thing. We could just relegate ourselves to settle for the reality that this is okay. just not fun. Okay. Or, let's say the alternative, we could try to change something. We could try okay. to prove ourselves <laughs> wrong. Okay. Okay. People tend to not want to be wrong. I kind of enjoy it, but I think that's... That's a rare trait. Well, I, I can tell you how it came about. At least, I, look, this is my self-perception. <laughs> You're the counselor. Maybe you'll tell me that my self-perception is inaccurate, if, if, in which case I would enjoy that because then I would learn something from it. <laughs> but, Brilliant. But I started teaching when I was 22, and my students were 18, and they were college students, and they were bright. And uh, a lot of us who were going to be teachers were being trained by a guy who was about 45 and brilliant. And I remember asking in a panic about three days before we went into the classroom, what if I'm wrong? What if I say something and some student points something out and it turns out that I'm wrong? And he said, well, why don't you just lightly say, hey, I guess I was wrong about that. Let's go look that up and let's go find out what's actually accurate. Mm -hmm. And then I, I just had this huge sense of relief because I thought I am going to be faced with about 40 people, uh, some of whom know a lot more than I do about a wide variety of topics. And then once I started getting students who were older than me, then that just absolutely proved it. I mean, when I was 25 and having 35-year-old students who were married and had three kids and maybe had served in the war or had done something that was just amazing, the only thing I knew more about than they at the time was grammar. And so I was teaching English. So I started to capitalize on the fact that, oh, this other person has expertise. Mm -hmm. I think I really want to tap into that. Sure. So so I guess I don't mind being wrong because I guess I already know what I think. Sure. So I would like that's to know. That's a rare trait than most. And I think it's a good thing. Well, thank you. I think you. that's a wonderful um, skill and, and identity to cultivate, the idea of humility and just being able to recognize things outside of yourself. Do you believe me, though? Do you believe that I enjoy being wrong? <laughs> Given our conversation, I mean, you, I don't think you would, you know, do podcasts and talk to people if you weren't, let's say, celebrating the fact that sometimes people know things you don't. Yeah. And I think there's a beauty yeah. in that, being able to talk to people and learn things outside of yourself. Okay. But I would say that's also a relatively rare trait okay. to want to be wrong to learn something else, especially when it comes to something as intimate as a relationship. Okay. Is that, well, I'm really hurt here, so... If I'm hurt, that must mean that you're wrong and I'm right. Yes. Okay. Rather than maybe I misunderstood something, maybe I could have you know, communicated more effectively. I'll maybe put a more positive spin on that, let's say. But okay, so people, you know, will sometimes suffer being unhappy because they don't want to be wrong. Right. Rather than, you know, deal with those short-term being unhappy, like risking offending each other and talking about things to learn something I couldn't know without dialogue. Okay. To try something different. We might learn something, but it's probably going to be unfun for a moment. Can't settle saying, would you rather be right or would you rather be Correct. happy? So let's, let's use a positive spin on that. Let's, let's, let's just project that forward. Okay. So what I kind of say a lot of times in an intimate relationship is the surprises that we like, right, the, the, the things that come out of nowhere that we like, tend to come from our own influence first. Okay. So the surprise that we don't like would be things that like uh, somebody was being deceptive or did something I didn't like or yeah. you know, did something behind my back or didn't tell me something. We tend not to like those surprises. Okay. Those tend not to be beneficial. Well, what if they're positive though? What if somebody, I don't know, brings somebody flowers? 
I'll circle back to that because okay. that, that kind of is part for the point, let's say. Okay, okay. And again, there might be some discrepancy there. There might be some, let's say, that are positive. But there's a risk factor there because even, let's say, good surprises can be somewhat risky if we don't have a hand in them. So like, oh, hey, I got all this money out of nowhere. Wait, did you know that was coming? Why didn't you tell me this? Like, that would have been, like, are you hiding more from me? So even good surprises, oh. if I don't know about them, can be risky, okay. let's say. But okay, so let's say that the idea of flowers, that, that's a relatively nice one. Okay. But here's the question there. So for, let's say, for anybody to get flowers, I mean, there's the nicety to that early on in relationship. Uh-huh. But as time goes on, is that, you know, how much do we know our partner enough to do that? So do we know they like flowers or not? I know some, let's say, we, I talked to my wife about this not too long ago. There are some women who are allergic and don't like flowers. <laughs> okay. So getting them flowers would not probably be the most helpful surprise. Okay. But for my wife, I've asked her questions like, hey, do, do, do you like flowers or not? Because that would, let's say, dictate when I would want to surprise you with the thing that I already know you like. Mm. The simple example would be like, let's say you have a favorite musical band, right? That's your preferential okay. desire. Well, for me to be able to get you tickets to something that you like, well, it kind of helped to get some feedback, some knowledge, some awareness of you. You've put that out in the ether. You've told people that. You've hinted at it. Again, I'm not saying that there's not more direct ways, but okay. you've had some hand in it. People only know what your favorites are if you've told them. Okay. So if I just try to get you some random thing, you could be like, well, I, I guess I appreciate the effort, but I really don't like the outcome. This isn't, <laughs> this isn't the greatest surprise. I don't like this particular thing. And so for the surprises that we like in marriage, like let's say a surprise birthday party. Okay, well, that depends on how well you know your spouse, let's say. Okay. Because I've tried different things. I've encouraged different things. And, well, some of it depends on that, you know, that how you love somebody else. Because for some people, like, for their birthdays, like, I would actually hate to be a surprise birthday party. Mm. I don't bring a lot of people. Right. I would rather be more intimate. So right. trying to do something good intention. But it's like, well, you don't know me at all if you're trying to make a big to-do about this with a lot of people. Some it's people true. enjoy that. Extroverts, that might be great. I use an example, like, for... My wife and I are both, funnily enough, more introverted. So where I've learned over the time, like, okay, like a big surprise party for her probably would not be the best thing. Okay. But just something more intimate, more personal. We could certainly do other things. But if the day is celebrating her, well, to do that well, I've had to get feedback from her for years on, okay, like who do you want to be involved? How many people? What type of things? And then I surprise her based on that information. Okay. So the surprises that work for intimacy require a lot of feedback Wow. And a lot of narrowing it down yeah. to be within a pool of things. Because could you surprise somebody in an infinite number of ways? Sure. Sure you could. For it to be a desirable surprise, right. you've had some hand in collating the type of options you would appreciate versus the ones that you would certainly not. Yeah, you could do an infinite number of surprises. You could take somebody out to dinner. You could give them an iguana. Uh, <laughs> you know, you could uh, sell the house and not tell them. There's all a, surprising. Which I think actually my grandpa did to my grandma. Ooh, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> so if I remember the story right. Okay, can I ask about what about gigantic, humongous problems? And, uh-huh, and, and uh-huh. you mentioned that things will lead up to those, but let me just give you some examples and maybe you could tell me some stories and, oh, and, and tell me how do people recover from these if they do, and these would include things like adultery uh-huh. or abuse uh, which I, I think could include like a constant stream of criticism, but but it could also be violence, you know, like, sure. okay, like one person like just decks the other person, breaks their nose, something like that. So, okay, so I guess adultery, abuse, and then finally addiction, because mm-hmm. because especially <laughs> like with addiction, I'm thinking of things like alcohol and drugs. Sure. Uh, my experience with with people who are alcoholics is is that it seems like their maturity level freezes at about the age they became an alcoholic. So mm-hmm. if that was fourteen, you were dealing with a fifty year old who is fourteen. 
Uh, I, I, it just it seems, and plus they tend to be very rigid, very rigid in their behavior, and so mm-hmm. they say no to everything. What, what do you do? And you could pick one. Just pick any one of these. How do you survive something like this? And and on the flip side, when do you know? Hey, I really should bail. You know, like I, I would really like to make this relationship work, but it, it, it's not salvageable. Mm-hmm. I, if if that's ever the case, sure. I'll try to simplify okay, a, please of those do. different things please, what yeah, I just, can. Yeah, pick one or do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what I specialize in um, in couples counseling, I do a lot of emotionally focused therapy. Okay. Um, and, and so the reason why I say that is one of the, the preconditions of entering into any couple working on that um, is you have to assess for the three A's, which is abuse affairs and addiction. Okay. And if any of those things are ongoing, okay. it contra- you can't do EFT with it. Them. It blows the whole thing to shreds. Correct. Um, any of the three A's blows, and, and you call it an EFT, emotionally focused therapy. Yes, Just yes. thought I'd clarify. Absolutely. Yeah, so any of those three would contraindicate, which just means it won't work. Okay. Um, because, again, there's, let's a, a, say, a certain um, serving two masters. You're dedicating yourself to this concept, this other, and your spouse, and you can't do both okay. in concert with each other. Okay. Something about the process won't work. Okay. Um, so then so, you'd say... Hey, listen, you're an alcoholic. Uh, I can't help you. That'll be $200, please. <laughs> well, usually I'd refer them on. It's like, again, I'm not unwilling to work with somebody, but I would say, like, if I've assessed this for the couples, like, you need to do some individual work first. Okay. Because there's a difference of, let's say, it's in the past, something is no longer co occurring or happening at, at okay. the time. Okay. So it's like, yeah, I've struggled with this before. Okay, well, what are you doing about that? Do you have resources, things in place, things to make you a healthier, holistic person? Okay. Then we can certainly work on things to overlap your world with your spouses and try to work through them. How, so- how does, how does okay, so give me a kind of an example or something because like, I don't know, let's say somebody's married to somebody who's, I don't know, either abusive or alcoholic or mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe they're doing all three. They're cheating sure. as well. And, and then you say, okay, listen, you got to do some individual work first. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's say that takes like three months. I, is this couple going to be living together during this time or do, does somebody move out? So going back to, let's say, the, the assessment process being pretty crucial for going forward is you're trying to assess both, let's say, the desire to get better, but also the things that would hinder somebody from being able to fully commit to that desire of getting okay. better. Um, or a way of putting it within emotionally focused therapy would be the health of any couple is predicated upon each individual's ability to self-soothe. So if you're relying on the other person to be your source of comfort and coping all the time, it will become codependent and fail. Okay. If you have, let's say, healthy people you're connected with and you're involved in healthy behaviors, two healthy people can certainly make a relationship work and, and, and improve that. But one healthy person cannot a relationship make. If okay. the other person is spiraling and having a hard time, okay. there has to be some appropriate separation for that. So I'll use two different extremes of that. So I had a okay. well, I had one of my favorite couples. I, didn't, I don't think I worked with them terribly long because they were actually pretty well established, let's say. Okay. Um, I probably worked with them for about a year or so. Um, so they, they had met, funnily enough, they had met in AA. Okay. So that was kind of a funny <laughs> starting okay. point. Um, well, they got a lot in common. Indeed. Um, but they were both tremendously hardworking. They, like, that was early in my career when I was coming at like 6 in the morning to see people, which I don't prefer anymore. Um, but I remember seeing them and they you know, would come in religiously and they'd come and work on things. They had all these tools and resources. They had people holding them accountable, pushing them to be better. To where they weren't in the throes of their addiction. They were both like in recovery, not just like in theory or like you know, sober in the sense of like they're not doing something wrong. Uh-huh. But they were actually very much deeply entrenched in self-betterment okay. to the point of where we worked on a lot of skills, a lot of tools, and they, they were 
tremendously more healthy and did a really good job of it. Wow. Whereas, let's say, on the other end of that spectrum, I had a couple here not too long ago that I, long story short, I kind of fired them. <laughs> I, I still, funnily enough, work with the, the husband individually. and um, You fired and a I couple. Did, I did. I fired a couple. Okay. And essentially, it, it came out. We did the assessment, and then they told me their side of things. I met with them both individually, and they were adamant that nothing was happening. And you know, over the course of a few, you know, a few weeks of this, I was like, huh. Something's not working here. Like she's asking for things and he's going above and beyond for all the complaints she has. And it's really, really hard. But there's like just something here that's not clicking, something not making sense. Okay. And as, you know, as, as truth would have it with a lot of therapy is that if, you know, something seems too good to be true, it probably is. Oh. It came out that she was, you know, having more of an emotional affair, so not like a physical one with okay. another person. Okay. And so it's like, well, of course this isn't working. She's devoted to two things at once. So she played his bluff, that assuming that her husband wouldn't change, and he went above and beyond to change, oh. and she was still dissatisfied, which seemed odd. Okay. Unless you consider the third party. Okay. Um, and so, like, once that eventually came out, and they kind of told me, and it kind of that's like, hey, you guys need to do some individual work. Clearly, there's a lack of like prioritization of this relationship. Okay. That again, it's one of those things where something is missing or something's not working. One of you is not telling the truth. Hmm. Couldn't tell which one at first. But it okay. came out pretty quickly. Okay. Okay. Wow. Are you good at detecting lies from people? I would say yes, although the extent of it is sometimes harder to say. Like, I can tell if somebody's not telling the truth. Okay. How I do don't tell? necessarily know how far they're going with that. <laughs> is it body language? Is it vocal tonality? What is it? How do you, how do you tell somebody's lying? Is it the, I don't know, contradictions? Their stories don't add up? I think there's a lot of things to it. I'm not saying I'm necessarily flawless at this by uh -huh. any means, but especially when it comes to to couples work, usually there's some some telltale things that don't make sense. Um, but I think a lot of it's just to do with like an incongruence with, let's say, what their if we get down to goals, what their desires are, okay. and then let's say areas of self sabotage, whether it be you know fear or um, some way of kind of struggling. It's like okay, you're you're saying you want this, but you're acting in a way that doesn't quite work towards that or doesn't make sense. Okay. So there, there's always some discrepancy, and usually it's pretty evident relatively clearly okay. that there's some self-deception happening. And to some degree, there are clients that don't necessarily know they're engaged in it. They're deceiving themselves. They're thinking, oh, well, this, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm drinking all the time, but that has no effect on my sleep. Hmm. Like, uh, okay. <laughs> it, it, yeah, well, I mean, it does. I mean, physiologically, people can just look it up. But yeah, oh, yeah. the alcohol is going to have. And an so sometimes I don't know if it's intentional or not. But usually, I can tell if there's something about reality that's not syncing up. Okay. Um, with what we're working on, there's usually you know uh, through questioning and conversation, usually things come out pretty quickly. Okay. And then then a question of okay, now that we're aware of this, now that we put these pieces together, is that something that you're let's say at a stage of motivation to where. You're acknowledging that and don't want to acknowledge it and are trying to do everything you can to avoid it or you're at a place to take action to synthesize your values. Okay, okay. Well, I, I feel like you probably answered my question then, uh, that if there's, say, adultery or abuse or affairs, then the way to get over that hump is first there's got to be some individual work that gets done. Correct. And the other person has got to be making a very sincere effort to defeat this problem. You mm -hmm. know, like, for example, if they're an alcoholic, uh, they might fall off the wagon occasionally, but sure. I mean, they are just doing their best. But to... it's the difference of, let's say, they're just you know sober in the extent of they're not doing the thing anymore, okay. which is more of, let's say, putting a pause on life, not improving mm -hmm. anything. So sobriety itself is just to stop something. Nothing actually gets better from sobriety. Right. It right. gives you the standpoint to actually start building. To I, be I feel better. like it brings people up to zero. You know, it's like, okay, so <laughs> you're, best, you have this gigantic negative situation. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, I guess zero might be the best case scenario. Well, because again, some things might still be hemorrhaging. 
damaging. You might have caused some hurt, and people are still frustrated. It's like, yeah, hey, I'm sober. Yeah, but you've hurt us for so long. Right. We're still not quite to zero yet. Right. Well, I mean, if they're working the 12 steps, uh, somewhere in the 12 steps, I think you're supposed to run around and apologize to right. every single person that you, you know, wiped mm-hmm. your feet on their face. But that's the difference of, let's say, just going cold turkey and stopping, expecting the world to be better, and actively applying yourself to something that makes life improved, yes. not just, you know, to, to zero things out, but actually go okay. better than that. Well, that kind of answers, that helps, because for years I've always kind of wondered with AA, like I, I just knew people who were in AA and, and you know, well, these were students, though. These were mm-hmm. like 16-year-olds, and they just felt like, hey, I achieved sobriety today. I did everything that I was absolutely supposed to. So I, I knew some people back in my old school this was a long time ago, like maybe 20 years ago, where this kid was happy because he was sober every day and he was like flunking every single class and I don't know, playing video games like six hours a day uh, and just, you know, was no interest in getting a job. And I just thought, well, well be a breeding ground for relapse. Yeah, there's there's got to be something more than, OK, so congrats. Like mm. you didn't drink today. I, I look, I'm not poo pooing that. I think that's great. But it was kind of like, hey, I've done that, so I don't have to do anything else. So I'll, I'll answer this from, let's say, the other spousal side, if that's okay. Because okay. you okay. mentioned, like, so if these yeah. are happening, if they're co-occurring, there, there's not a lot you can do in that situation, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if somebody's working hard on it, okay. then by all means, I think there's room for improvement there. But I think there has to be a mutual desire for change. Okay. Um, I've dealt with clients that they're into where somebody's, like, working very hard, doing all things right and jumping through hoops, and the spouse was just still not forgiving of that, still holding it against them, okay. still kind of being somewhat, yeah. like, venomous in their desire for change and sabotaging it well because as soon as somebody gets better the only person to change there is you and so some people (laughs) some people scapegoat and and like to have a problem with their spouse because that means that they get the focus off of them you know it's true unfortunately it's true i there is that type of person uh maybe i've been this type of person where it's just easier to point the finger and oh that other person needs to do x y and z Mm -hmm. meanwhile i'm cool I'm cool over here doing nothing. If we just got rid of this one thing, there'd be no problems in our marriage. That's never once how it would ever work. But some people are like, oh, well, if this wasn't happening, our marriage would be flawless. Right. Never the case. Our marriage would be normal, and we'd have to put a lot of effort into it regardless of whether it's happening or not. Okay. But there is a certain amount of hope there. And this is what I usually encourage, let's say, regardless of what stage of relationship we're in, as a safeguard from falling into a lot of bad habits and patterns and, and being fostering these unhealthy things, I would say both as a starting point of relationship, but also as a, let's say, recovery point if something has gone wrong. Okay. Um, and this takes tremendous humility, and it very much goes against the the pride that sometimes gets in the way of healthy relationship. Yeah. Is that if we're not careful, relationship effectively doesn't work when it's just two people. Okay. Okay. Yeah, can you... Well, I mean, okay, with a relationship, oftentimes children come into play. So then there's three people, five people, 12 people. But you also have your neighbors, you have your family of origin, you have your work colleagues, you have your old friend that you used to play tennis with. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess you very seldom have two people on an island. Agreed. Nor would that be particularly healthy. That's kind of like high school romance side of things. Like, you have like <laughs> you know, your buddy goes off with his girl for a while, and after three months they come back and they miss everybody and things kind of fell apart pretty quickly. Right. Uh, again. Well, they, yeah, and so many people complain about that. They're oh, like, true. oh, now you come back to us. You've yep. been ignoring us for three months. <laughs> yep. But I, I use that as an example, not to be overly, you know, uh, silly about it. Okay, but, but be mar- silly. It's but fun. marriage does not work when it's just two people. And I don't okay. mean that in the like sense okay. of like you know you have your people around you in a functional sense. But 
there needs to be other people that have some oversight, some intimate knowledge of what you're working on. Oh. And that's the part that I think is How challenging. How much oversight? That's a good question. It depends on what you're coming in with. Okay. And that's the struggle. I, I, I don't mean to say that lightly. Okay. Because the natural state of relationship for anybody is that two people cannot work permanently together without needing a third party. Okay. There's always going to be that stabilizing force necessary. Yeah. So if you have a sibling, okay. you know, issue with the sibling, go to your parent, issue with the coworker, go to your boss. We're constantly looking for that third party to help okay. us stabilize when there is friction between two different human beings that don't agree on everything all the time. Okay, but on the opposite side of this, don't people complain when, oh, just random example, when she goes home to her mom and mm-hmm. says, my husband is so mean to me and he does X, Y, and Z, and then, you know, now we've got people taking sides and isn't that a problem? Almost certainly is. It depends on how. Okay. So a natural state of relationship is we will triangulate out. The question is, do we proactively do it in a healthy way mm. or do we reactively do it in a destructive way? Okay. So either we, let's say, I'll use the examples of, okay, so we're struggling. Do we, you know, call a therapist, have a third party help us to get better at our relationship? Or do we go hang out with the guys or the gals and complain about our spouse and get all these reasons to get rid of them? Okay. We're going to do it regardless when we're feeling just some friction, some frustration. The question is the oversight we have of that. So, again, it's like the question between like I'm okay with you talking to your, you know, your healthy friend who's pro-marriage versus your divorced friend who just says all men are worthless. Right. I might have a little bit of discrepancy on which one. Okay. And so the risky thing there is so either we proactively, let's say, put healthy people in place. So like okay. I'm okay with you talking to your mom or your dad or like your healthy people. You have good friends. Like mm-hmm. you have your support system. You have your sobriety group. You have all these people yeah. that are pushing you to be a better person. That makes us better. Okay. Now, if we don't have those things, then we're much more prone to when there's uh, uh, friction or any kind of dis, you know, disagreement, if we do not have those things already in place, those healthy things to go into when we do separate, oh. there's that anxiety of like, oh gosh, we can't. I have to do whatever you want. I cannot let us separate because you'll you know go to some addiction, you go to some affair, you go to some unhealthy third okay. stabilization party so to make you, you feel no better. Friends and no family. That's probably not the right time to get into a relationship. I'm sure that there are exceptions, like, but. Uh, I guess what I'm hearing is, is like if you don't have that third party that's sort of a stabilizing force and then plus that third party needs to be pro-marriage and want the relationship to succeed mm-hmm. uh, and, and not just like embrace you in, in your complacency. I mean it's kind of getting away from the hubris of assuming that we have to like reinvent the wheel of marriage. There's okay. people who have done it before us. There's yeah. relationships to admire and, and mirror. There's like people who have done studies to look up how to make this better rather than just we have to figure out ourselves oftentimes leads to the worst case scenarios because then it's like, well, we can't complain about things. We can't talk about it. So we'll just vent to other people rather than let's say going to friends saying, hey – what could I do to be a better husband? What do you guys do? How can I make this better? It's, hey, what do I do to get rid of this crazy woman or change her? <laughs> How you bring the third party in matters. Is okay. it, again, is it at the expense of or for the sake of your spouse? Is it, okay. I'm going to talk to people about what I can do for you is very different than I'm going to talk to people, how do I change you or make you better? Even if you use that from a scriptural standpoint, like having God involved in a relationship is a good idea. Yes. Through prayer, through any sort of, let's say, invocation. And again, the idea of praying to God is not, hey, can you just change my crazy spouse? It's <laughs> help me have patience, help me work on things, help me have grace, help me explain things better. If it's to change me, it will work much more healthily than if it's to change them. Okay. And so we will naturally triangulate out. And so that's where I come back to the idea that what I use a lot of times is the terminology of, you know, having. And I, I do this with a lot of single people as well, is you know, you have to have a world 
to intersect with this person. You're not just marrying an individual. You're, you're integrating their world. So the closer yes. you are, the more intimate you are with this person – well, it helps to know because, again, if you're just dating somebody, I, I use this example. Like, it's the sooner you can integrate into their world, the healthier it's going to be. Okay. The longer you postpone that, oftentimes the, the, the worse some of the issues can become over time. Okay. So if you have, let's say, friends or family, people that you trust and who you believe care about you, hmm. it's beneficial to have the other person interact with them sooner rather than later. Okay. Because, A, it'll show you, let's say, if your friends and family, people that have loved you for a long time, don't approve of them. Okay. That's going to be a problem ongoing. It's not just going to go away. Okay. Or let's say if you know they can treat you really well, they do a good job treating you, but around their friends, they don't treat you very well or they don't treat your family and friends very well because it's like they don't care about them. They just wanted you by yourself. Mm. Well, that's the breeding ground for abuse. The idea oh, that yeah. I want you to be all to myself and push everybody else away so there's no oversight. Nobody can challenge things. You're just hearing things. This this isn't the way it is. This is reality. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Because we need some oversight. It's amazing. Like you, you do hear these things like, uh, hey, that should be kept within the family, that type of thing. Mm, but yes, yeah, but yeah. then if you go to a college campus and then you pick up a pamphlet and it talks about abusive relationships – one of the very first things it says is, uh, do they peel you away from like all of your family and all of your friends and just try to isolate you? And yep. do they go crazy whenever you're talking to like, hey, you were talking to the guy behind the counter when you were getting that bagel, you know, that bagel delivery guy, you were talking to him for like way too long, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, if they're peeling you off from all of these people, that's Bad. Agreed. It's really bad. So that isolation, just the two of you, is the breeding. Like, again, even healthy people that just don't have other oversight, other people to spend time with. Again, if we're not getting fed from other places, well, eventually we'll just be you know, pouring back and forth from the same cup with nothing new pouring in okay. rather than getting things from other places to continue to go on them. So I, I use this example for like you know the, the, the health of, let's say, like going on a date with your spouse. Uh-huh. Let's say, good idea, but at the same point, the two individuals going on the date matter. So if it's all we talk about on the date, we get out of our normal routine, but all we talk about is kids and job. Okay. That's probably not going to be the most fun or enjoyable no. conversation. No, you could have done that at home. Yeah. Now, if it's going on a date and saying, hey, like, what's that fun thing that you did with your friends the other day? Hey, what's some new exciting adventure that you want to go on with your guys or your gals? Or what, what do you want to do next or something? Like if, it's, if there are things that we're doing to be healthy, autonomous individuals and pushing and encouraging that, yes, we have something to talk about on a yeah. date. Otherwise, yeah. it's just we're roommates. We're checking on, hey, have you paid the bills? Right. Have you taken the kid to this thing? You know, what's the next stressor we have to deal with? It's just too transactional. Then we're back to the, you know, the uh, friendship of utilization to where it's just we're here just to check the box to make sure we're getting things done. There's not the passion of like, hey, okay. I would love to hear about the things that you're doing when I'm not around. I would okay. love to encourage you to have people in your life pouring into you because if I see you as valuable, I want as many things pouring into you as possible. The alternative is if I cut off all those opportunities, cut off all of that, and I'm not able to be everything for you, even if I wanted to be, even if my desire is to be everything for my spouse, I, I can't be. I can't be no. there 24-7. And so if I'm thinking I can be everything and she has nothing else, the natural assumption is she has to get her needs met at some other way. Right. And if it's not integrated intentionally and proactively, it will be reactive. Like I never thought I would do anything bad. Like people that are just beside themselves. Like I never thought I would cheat or go to addiction, but I was just so low, such a low point. My husband was working or my wife was busy or something happened. Okay. And I just made one bad decision that spiraled into more. That doesn't tend to happen if you have a healthy support system okay. of people. Okay. Okay. Um, I guess I have two related questions to this, and this this might actually help us get close to a conclusion. Um, okay. But uh, one of them is is forgiveness. 
how do you forgive? How do you help people forgive? I think some people have a much harder time with forgiveness than others. And hey, that's just the variety of individuals. But then a second question is, and and I feel like we partially touched on it, what constitutes uh, maybe an ideal man or an ideal woman? I I realize that there is no ideal. So Mm -hmm. maybe instead we could say like, what constitutes like not just a healthy relationship, but a exciting, vibrant, you know, <laughs> wonderful, healthy relationship. Sure. So I guess forgiveness and then like how do we upgrade our relationship? All right. I can go a couple different angles. So I'll start with the forgiveness part of that. Okay. Because um, I think there's a lot we can do with that. Um, so the forgiveness to start with, right? So forgiveness okay. is an individual process. Not, yeah. a, not a relational one yet. Okay. So what okay. I mean by that is forgiveness is for your own soul, let's say, to not hold on to things or, like, let's say, it denigrate you over time. Okay. I, even if, I want to forgive so that I don't become a bitter, resentful person. And unfortunately, the, the cost of not forgiving is rarely as obvious as we'd like it to be, and it's much more chaotic. So let's say we are upset about, you know, person A bothering us years ago. If I don't forgive that person, it may never affect that person whatsoever. But person B, let's say the person I'm currently with or the people I'm currently associated with are suffering the consequences of me not forgiving that person because mm. I may be bitter or spiteful or just annoyed or quick to judge or um, okay. very reactive to similar stimuli if I haven't gotten over that to gotcha. some degree. Gotcha. So forgiveness is, is certainly an individually led process. It has nothing okay. to do with anybody else. It has to do with me being able to have the appropriate amount of distance and empathy towards another person, again, hoping the best for them but not necessarily staying in that bitterness. Where it comes to relationship, there's a distance and a difference between forgiveness and reconciling. Okay. Forgiveness is necessary to reconcile. Okay, that's part one. So forgiveness is step one. You have to be able to forgive somebody because if you hold on to a slight from years ago, it doesn't matter what they do. If you don't let go of that, things cannot get better. You will sabotage growth if you're still embittered about that one thing. We're never going to get to reconciling. No. So reconciliation uh, is the relational, let's say, next step of forgiveness, which is both individuals, both okay. people in the relationship have to be different. Okay. Not one or the other, but but both. Okay. So in the sense of, let's say, a, a slight in a relationship, it's, okay, if you're willing to work on things, I'll try to give you more chances. If you're willing to try to talk to me more, I'll try to be more listening to you. What is the, the, the balance that has to be had here if I want a relationship? I can forgive somebody and never see them again. That's true. But to reconcile doesn't really work if it's just I'll forgive you and then forget is one of the worst things I hear. It's like yeah. forgive and forget works only in the extent of a lack of relationship. So forgive and forget is some random person from my past. Forgive them. Move on. Forget about it. I'm not currently engaged with them, so it's not relevant. Yeah. Forgive I, and forget does not work if you have an ongoing relationship Yeah. because you still have to – like maybe that person didn't mean to. Maybe they didn't know any better. Maybe they made a mistake. Well, until you point that out in a loving, respectful way and help them get better or work with you more, understand where they're coming from – Odds are they're probably going to repeat behaviors even if you've forgiven them. If they don't even know what they've done to bother you, what the problem is, things tend to get worse. Okay. So reconciliation is a mutual agreement to change. So we both have to be different. Okay. So we're both going to make an effort here in this one particular area. And to some degree, and this is maybe (laughs) more long long term than short term, Uh essentially it's also setting the precedent for, let's say, what happens in any long-term relationship, what happens when the shoe's on the other foot. Let's say we unintentionally bother them to some degree, Uh and we're on the side of, okay, you know, I want you to forgive me, but you have to tell me what I can do to make it up to you. You have to give me more chances. Like, I can try a lot of things, but until you tell me what the problem is or until you, you know, let me show you that I care – 
I don't, you should be resentful and bitter for a long time. Right. I have no idea why. Right. And so it's like, hey, I need to be you know, forgiving of you because that's what I would require and need from you to yes. be able for us both to move forward. So we yeah. both take on both roles at some point if we're right. in a relationship long enough. Right, right. Because, gosh, I mean, there's all these stereotypes about like who's right and who's wrong and all that kind of stuff. But really, if you're married for 50 years, there's going to be times when you're right, and then there's going to be times when you're wrong, and we probably don't want to get too locked into this concept of right and wrong. I learned that from you an hour ago. Indeed. Well, it's, it's a question of, let's say, a time where, whether you meant to or not, that where one person's like hurt or prioritized something different, or where you just, again, find out areas where you are different human beings. That's right. And rather than fight for, well, obviously everyone does it this way, or this is the way that men do it, or this is the way my family did it, it's okay, well, let's hear the way you do it. Let's hear the way I do it. And let's try to find some middle ground of what we want for our family. That's right. So it's less about right or wrong. It's like, oh, well, this is just what I'm used to. But that doesn't always make it necessarily healthy. It's just familiar. Okay. And so there's a... There's a benefit of like you're, you're doing something wrong versus, hey, why do you do it that way? Do, do you have tips for how to forgive or or do we just say, hey, listen, you got to forgive? Because if you want to reconcile, like do people know how to forgive or do people need tips and advice <laughs> as to how to forgive? Well, I'll put it this way. Uh, again, easier said than done. Depends on the degree of harm, let's say. But I think everyone's capable of it. To some degree, part of forgiveness, I think that the challenge of that is being able to let's say, going through the emotional stuff that we've talked about before, Uh shifting from, let's say, the shame of, oh, I should have known better, that shouldn't have happened, like very much past-focused into, okay, like what did I learn from this? How do I become better? How do I seek out skills I didn't have? How do I work on boundaries? How do I, you know, give people a chance to make it up to me and do something? Is that there has to be an effort to seek out gratitude, to learn something I don't know, to learn some new skill, to try something different, to try to become better because of this slight, because... If something happened that went wrong, okay, um, it doesn't mean we're at fault for it, but it means that now I can't be unresponsible for what comes next. So if somebody hurts you in the past, okay, not my fault, didn't know any better, but now that I know that's possible to happen, I could at the very least try to operate my life differently to be more okay. conscientious and careful of what opportunity I give, if not advocate for other people to do the same rather than just, let's say, easily short term just assume that okay all men are bad all women are bad the situation is never good nothing good happens out of this Mm. it's okay no that that didn't feel good so how can i become even more intentional more thoughtful more knowledgeable about this area where i've been hurt before so here's here's what i've heard i've heard maybe some boundaries or guidelines have to be established but then also there's got to be an effort toward gratitude yep so like let me come up with a awful example let's say that there was cheating in a relationship Mm -hmm. and then you could be grateful because the cheater is working on, let's say it was the guy, he's working on himself. Uh, You know, you see that he's working on himself. He's, I don't know, talking with a priest or a counselor. He's uh, being much more accountable about where he's at, when he's there, that kind of, just whatever. He's doing his best to prove to you Mm -hmm. that he's not relapsing, et cetera. So then she could say, hey, I am grateful because he's doing all these i mean she's still hurt she's still uh not feeling good but mm-hmm. she is maybe grateful i i don't know i'm trying to spin sure. a scenario is that an accurate oh yeah i mean it could be grateful towards a lot of different things there as far as okay like the people that helped her process through that okay so it doesn't always have to be directly related to him it's like yep i'm glad okay. that i wouldn't have maybe talk to these friends if this hadn't happened but i've become closer to them okay. i found a therapist to help me out with other things that i wouldn't have thought of because of this mm-hmm. scenario other flaws kind of came out that process of where i could improve as a person my, my, let's say the person who hurt me doesn't always 
make it up to us. It doesn't always, let's say, see a desire to change, but let's say okay. they do. Okay. It's like, yeah, and I'm grateful that I learned how to put up boundaries because that's how I would know if they actually care about me or just want the utility of me. Okay. And so it's like I put up boundaries and they still want to work on it. Oh, gosh, I never would have known that that was possible versus just assuming we can coexist without okay. She can be grateful for a lot of things. She but it takes grateful. effort, and it's not easy to no. work towards gratitude, especially when we've no. gone through something painful right. of how adversity makes us stronger. That's hard. Okay. <laughs> I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not trying to, to sugarcoat that. But there are versions of that to where like couples that have gone through some pretty traumatic things and have cheated and other things. I've had couples that have gone through that and wanted to get better, put things in place, had oversight, had people involved to give credibility to their actions and healthy relationships to where – they're all the healthier for the fact that a flaw happened. They point out there's a flaw here. And it's like, yeah, rather than just try to be by myself, it's like, I need friends that need to Nietzsche. hold me accountable and put me in a better frame of mind. That Nietzsche quote, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. Yeah. I mean, assuming it doesn't maim us, in which case it makes us weaker, you know. But, but I mean, I guess what you're saying is if a person takes that horrible incident and then chooses to use that to work on themselves, maybe work on the relationship... Uh, be grateful for the five people who helped them work on everything, et cetera, uh, has now articulated some boundaries and guidelines, it could really make you stronger. You went through hell, and it could make you stronger. Absolutely. And again, more resolved and more more seeing what, what level of sacrifice we're willing to put in, because every relationship works to some level, let's say, on a superficial. And ironically, that's where a lot of us fall apart <laughs> is when it's the superficial. So everyone gets along when things are great and easy and fun and uh-huh. enjoyable. Yeah. And okay, so let's say you get into a relationship with somebody, that doesn't necessarily immediately equate to half of the world's population no longer existing to tempt you. Yeah, They're still there. You'll still find other people. Even in a healthy relationship, you'll find other human beings that have different levels of attraction of, you know, not just like physical, but emotional and, and intellectual and just passion. Like you will find other people attractive in a number of different traits in a lot of different ways. You're married. You're not blind. Fair point. <laughs> True. <laughs> As they say. What makes marriages last is not the fun, enjoyable stuff, although please continue to engage in those things, but it's the inevitability of how we handle the hard things, whether external or internal, that shows that, okay, this person's willing to stick with me through the hard stuff. That's where marriage is built, and oftentimes the idea would be to proactively strengthen ourselves, like, hey, how are we going to avoid some pitfalls? How are we going to work on some things? How can you complain to me in a productive way rather than waiting until the inevitability of some external threat shaking us up? Because those are the people that, okay, anybody can be attracted on the surface level to pull us away. And if all our relationship turns out to be is just the the functional, the happenstantial things, mm-hmm. not the intentional stuff, well, then everyone's a threat, unfortunately. Okay. Because anybody can be fun for a minute and that's distracting and that can get in the way of it. But if you have somebody who's willing to see you at your worst, to to take on your challenges and try to become better, to be challenged by each other – Nothing compares to that. Okay. Because people can be frivolously fun in short term, but there's no guarantee you'd have more than one event of that. Okay. So versus people that you have hardships with and, and, and get better because of that. Okay. Have infinite number of good times because, like, hey, even if something else bad happens, we've gone through it. We know how to do it. We've gotten better at it. We have crystallized the hard stuff, the process by which we struggle to where infinite number of good times are possible versus. Just the immediate, okay, I find one person, we get along great. As soon as problem happens, go to the next one, trade up to the next model, so on and so forth. And just the instant gratification robs any sort of depth. Okay. So maybe this is kind of leading into... The virtuous uh, question? Yeah. Um, it, it seems like here's kind of what you're suggesting for couples. Uh, one is offer some challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, try to become more resilient. Uh, I guess both people should probably try to 
both toughen up but also be more empathetic. Mm -hmm. uh, we should be updating our relationships. We should be talking quite a bit and finding out that, hey, wow, your preferences changed. Like you used to love your job. Now you don't like your job, et cetera. What do we do about it? Uh, yeah. And then what are we going to do about it? So a little bit of planning. Uh, keep the fun stuff. But understand that uh, life is going to get hard from time to time. And how we deal with that is going to be determinative of whether or not we keep our relationship. Yeah. These are many of the points that I've taken from you. Mm -hmm. uh, what what did I leave out? I think it's pretty good. I'm not sure I'll, I'll say you leave out anything necessarily, but I will kind of transition that into yeah. a little bit of a question you mentioned earlier, if that's okay. okay. okay yeah, I think you're pretty do. much spot on. I think there has to be some amount of continual self-knowledge and then articulation like conversation with this person you're continuing to develop with over time okay i think is one of the most essential and, and simple but it takes a certain amount of effort yes i've never met a couple personally or professionally that didn't have to struggle to make it look easy okay huh. if you try to make it easy it will be somewhat destructive unfortunately okay. you try to read minds and guess at things and not actually work at it yeah um so it's yeah, marriage is simple, not easy. It's one of my favorite terms. <laughs> yeah, I like um, that too. But you mentioned so the idea of like virtuous uh, things. And and this is something that I'd, I'd say I can use some general examples, but even some like more specific ones to yeah, clients how I've worked with lately. Too. So the, the virtuous man, let's say, okay, um, especially in our day and age, and this sounds maybe counterintuitive, is going to be the man who is, let's say, able to find that balance of being able to be you know, uh, competitive and, and, and conscientious and, and capable in, let's say, the real world, okay. but also able to challenge their spouse, which is fascinatingly what I think I've dealt with in the past probably like five or six years. A lot of the single women that I come in with that have gone through divorce, that have gone through separation, through, through some terrible things, or just are wanting to find a, a mate – is almost all of them equally say we want a, a spouse that challenges us. Okay. Doesn't just, you know, go along with whatever we want, not just say all the right things and then behind the scenes do a bunch of terrible things, which is what a lot of them run into is the unintegrated man, which is overly appeasing, overly nice, overly kind, mm. but then behind the scenes is doing all the terrible things that they never would have suspected. Okay. So all I'm like, no, I, I want to be challenged. I want you to tell me things I can work on. I want you to risk offending me okay. to make me feel like I have a, some hand in this that you've integrated some the, degree. The guy's got to be kind of challenging. Yeah. Yeah, so like he's, he's got to challenge, I don't know, garbage statements when he hears garbage statements. To lovingly call out the BS when it happens because yes. no person is perfect. And usually, let's say, in, 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 in the more healthy moments, like most of the women I work with, yes, they have moments of emotionality, to be fair. But most of them are, let's say, wise and are intellectual uh -huh. enough to know that uh -huh. I don't know everything. I could be better. Yes, I like to have certain things. I have preferences and I know how to kind of manipulate emotionally my way through conversation. Okay. But I need somebody to kind of stop me from doing that to be more conscientious right. and be a partner to have that intellectual dialogue back and forth, not just yes. to cave anytime I seem upset and that's when the changes yeah. happen. Yeah, don't don't give her everything she wants at, at the moment because, you know, if she just asks for a whole bunch of things that are going to make her lazy, then you really don't want that. Mm -hmm. um, and then you mentioned this word integration earlier, sure. and that's a big word in Jungian psychology. Yes. And uh, in a nutshell, here's where I kind of want to go with this, is that Jung believed that you basically have two parts to your brain. Well, there's a lot more than two, but he basically would say ego and shadow. Mm -hmm. Ego is everything you know about yourself, and shadow is oftentimes it's things that maybe you don't know about yourself, but they're there. And so you mentioned the nice guy, you know, who's yeah. compliant and mm -hmm. uh, gives people everything they want and always says yes to people and seems really sweet and nice and would never harm anybody. 
Well, the shadow side is still there. Okay. And if you're not aware of it, uh, then it just becomes dense and black, and then it pops out at the worst possible moment. And so, like, maybe the shadow side is uh, why the person, I don't know, like, overindulges in food or drank or something mm. like that or, you know, seemed really, really nice, and then all of a sudden he exploded and said something really, really nasty. And it's because, you know, you can't be perfect all the time. You can't be, like, this nice guy mm-hmm. all the time. And that's the, that integration of, like, so going back to the very beginning, I want to come back to how this links together okay. with, like, okay. the masculine and feminine yeah, love and how that's, like, what we would desire – so the man who, let's say, not as overcorrecting, because a lot of our society, we're going for like, you know, men and it's toxic and bad and right, all that right, stuff. Right. So yeah. we're seeing men go to the other degree of extremity of that, which is not good either. Right. To just be the more passive and permissive. And again, either they're they're fostering the absolute worst tendencies of their counterpart or they're just unincorporated themselves, neither one being great, whether yes. they are just – you know, encouraging their spouse to do terrible things or where they're hiding terrible things to make it look like they're good. Kind of like hyper-aggressive versus hyper-passive. Yep. And then the hyper-passive is probably doing all these nasty things but on the sneak. So it's kind of like the, the the spectrum of like taking on some of the toxic traits of both masculine and feminine. It's either, you know, until things get better, I'm just going to like hide things or it's I'm just going to, let's say, overly pamper this person expecting them to be healthy. Yeah. Neither of those things are good. It's like the ideal for the man is to, let's say, be... That you know, like expect more of a person. Like, yep, yeah, you're a great person. Be better. Keep right. working at. It. Like, what do you right. want to keep working on? What's the next thing for you? Right. Is that really the best way of treating your friends? Maybe you could do be a bit better at that. Like a challenging person, but also working on the more feminine side of I love you no matter what. Yeah, work on yourself <laughs> to find a healthy balance of those two. Right. So we're learning from the, the female side of like, okay, I'm not just gonna say like keep working on self, keep doing things. I may or may not be around for that. It's like I love you. And also work on yourself. Because yeah. we have to balance both. So men usually have to work on the I love you no matter what part of it and then push. People make fun of uh, that old saying like I love you, now change. <laughs> but really it ought to be I love you, let's grow. Better. Yeah. And so that would be the, so the more, let's say, I, idyllic man nowadays is somebody okay. who can be competent and then know how to, let's say, be gentle with their guard down in equal okay. measure. Okay. And then the more feminine side of virtue is, again, going back to like the, the virtuous female is the one who can like know when to step away and, and be able to kind of create that space effectively, not to be like hyper controlling in the intimacy, but rather to like let things grow, to like be able to be direct and specific with a problem right. rather than too much time not always being a good thing. Sometimes like upset at everything. Don't yeah. be upset at everything. Sometimes okay to create space, to, to suggest something to be very direct and specific with what you want rather okay. than assume that more time and more hints and more passive-aggressive and more um, different ways of trying to convey a message without just saying, if you'd work on this, I'd appreciate it. If not, I will have to do this. You know, I, I've noticed too that oftentimes when people feel that they're powerless in a situation, they do that whole indirect passive aggressive don't approach problems directly i've just noticed this with high school students because i've seen if the cliche is that girls engage in that kind of behavior i've seen plenty of guys engage in that type of behavior and i just wonder sometimes if it boils down to how powerful you feel and if you feel like you don't have any agency or power in the situation, maybe you engage in hints and passive-aggressive. Well, and and there's been a lot more stuff of this. I think this is, this is still, I'd say, a relatively recent phenomenon, all things considered on a global scale. Um, just the, 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 the toxic side of, like, femininity I think is becoming more interesting. Okay. I think a lot of toxic masculinity has had, you know— you know, Lots of airplanes. Centuries of opportunity to be nitpicked and processed through, right? The idea of yeah. you know, the, the corrupt person on the, the, the you know, patriarchal side, yeah. of it, let's say. 
because that would be, let's say, the, the idea of um, getting to the point of like physical violence. So there's right. been a lot of stuff about, you know, um, antisocial male behavior is usually predominantly some sort of like physical violence altercation, like getting to the point of just anger in and right. trying to dominate the conversation, which is certainly not good. And I say a lot of society has helped to curb the extremity of that. Uh, again, there are more men in prison than women by a long shot because like, oh, we've sure. stamped out a lot of the the hyper-aggressive um, side of masculinity, which is good. Okay. What's interesting is like women have entered in the workforce is we still don't know quite what to do with the antisocial feminine side of that, okay. which there's a lot of um, studies that have gone into, and it's pretty well known that women have different tools, but not too dissimilar. Okay, and, and what, what? okay, so like if, if the big flaw with the guys is they're hyper-aggressive, potentially violent. Yeah, domineering, controlling. Okay, then what's, sense. what's okay, maybe in the workforce, what's the big, big toxic female behavior? Is so it antisocial like, feminine behavior. Is it sneaking around? Is it like... Uh, it's sa- character sabotage. Okay, got it. Because we're not going to be able to like beat you in a physical altercation, okay. but I can render you useless from a social standpoint. I can gossip. I can try uh, to cancel well. you. I can sell your reputation. I can do a lot of different things. And I okay. think it's exploded with the digital age. And Nasty. so even men are taking on that like swing to where, okay, yeah. physical domination doesn't work, but I can do things like through computer and anonymously and try to like send things out to ruin your life and reputation. And that's much more of the feminine side of antisocial behavior. It's that I'm not going to like, I'm going to be nice to you in person, but I'm going to sabotage your entire existence behind the scenes. Okay. Yeah. Because that's how it works. Uh, Yeah. Maybe somebody goes to the boss and then poisons the well, basically. And you know, you weren't in the room to defend yourself, but you got zapped. So that's where I say like the virtuous female is one who is direct, one who just says, okay. I don't like this thing. Could you work on it? Versus I'm going to try to like hint at, like we've had friends of ours that have done this on occasion. We have like some couple friends that you can tell the ones that are comfortable and uncomfortable to be around. And we've had some that try to rope us into conversation. Almost generally speaking, the wife is one more prone to do this. Okay. Rather like, oh, like talk to her husband in person or, or delve into that in a healthy way. I've had different spouses like, hey, Adam, would you agree that like this type of behavior, that's a really bad thing, right? <laughs> like try to rope me into this conversation to guilt trip them or manipulate. Like, I, I don't want to be a part of this. Again, I don't, I, I'm not going to say right or wrong for your relationship. I don't want to be roped into this uncomfortable dialogue. Yeah. And so I'll kind of like opt out a lot of those. But I know that's, that's a common trait. It's like rather than directly approach something, it's like, oh, everything's great. Everything's great. Oh, hey, other random people, can you just join with me and attack this person? Okay. Like that's usually not a good tactic for mutuality and growth because okay. immediately you're throwing – all these other people's judgments on it rather than giving the person the the possibility of being able to address it effectively. Do they teach you when you become a therapist how to uh, not participate in these evil triangles that people <laughs> That would be a disintegrate. Yeah, that's a good point. That's an unhealthy triangulation. Yeah. Do they, do they teach you like how to opt out of that so you don't get suckered into that? Yeah, the, the term we use is, again, this is more jargon I don't like to use okay. often, but the, the term they use is multipartiality, which is like to look for areas where like both parties have some right to the truth a little bit to where there's no like one right answer. There's no one perfect way. There's always something in the middle. Well, that sounds like you're engaging with it. Like that um, would be like I'm saying in therapeutic standpoint. Okay, front inside of therapy. Sure. Correct. Sorry. Okay, but what Boy, about when you're at somebody's birthday party and then somebody comes in and says, "Well, my spouse." Yeah, that's a that's a boundary thing. That that would be uh, yes, I think that would be something you teach clients on the individual levels. Like again, like are you a primary source? Are you involved in this or not? If somebody's saying like, "Hey, what can I do to be better for somebody?" Engage in that all day long because you're trying to be better. If the question is, "How can I change this person?" Or just complain about event about them. It's, 
okay, like if you just want to vent once, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But one of my favorite questions, and this might actually solve okay. a lot of it, and this kind of maybe will rope everything back together, right? Oh, okay. So one of the most loving questions you can ask maturely and lovingly to somebody else. And okay. I would say there's certainly a, a, a follow-up to this, but I think it's jarring for people to hear this okay. first part that is essential to loving somebody, right? Yeah. So somebody's struggling, they're going through a hard time, they have an issue with their spouse, they're personally unhappy, right? There's only so much you can do to just like say, oh, that sucks, I'm so sorry, and and, and here's what you, I think you should do and all this. But the most loving thing you can tell somebody who's struggling in some way, shape, or form, what do you want to do about it? Mm. Yeah. So your spouse is being a terrible person. It's like, oh, yeah, they're terrible. You should get rid of them. All this stuff. It's like, okay, well, what do you want to do okay, about that's it? Are you, are you very Socratic. To... What if they have no idea? They, they have an idea if you ask them. They do. They, 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 they kind of know what they want to do. And to some do. degree, they, they might be like, oh, how dare you? Like, you, you're not listening to me. You're not telling me what to do. Like, I was like, I, again, if I tell you what to do, then you can just say it's my fault. <laughs> so I don't want to do that. I don't want to get roped into that one. Or if I tell you what to do and you don't do anything, well, then I'm getting frustrated because I keep telling you the advice and you just keep pushing it off and okay. complaining over and over about the same thing. At some point, the most loving thing to do is, okay, you can keep complaining and just waiting for the world to change. You can take somebody else's advice and then act like it's not your fault because it wasn't your advice. You didn't do your own okay. due diligence. It's what, what is it that you want to do about this? I so, see what you're doing. You're basically making them take responsibility for their own relationship versus like outsource and say, well, the therapist told me to. Hmm? It's what do you want to do about this? Is the most loving thing you can say, men, women, or otherwise, doesn't really matter. You're empowering them to say, oh, okay. it doesn't matter what happened. What matters is what I choose to do about this. Is right. it, I want to forgive that person or I want to hold it against them forever? It's focusing on, yep, things, bad things happen. What, what do you want to do about that? Because maybe, if this, this would be bad, but maybe they just want to complain about it and maybe they just want to be told how right they are and they just want to have a bunch of people like take their side and then they don't want to have to do a damn thing. Sure. That's the scary part of it, let's say, like affirmations are kind of a scary thing in, in today's society, like affirming everybody's like, well, that's not quite how it works. In fact, no. that can be extremely damaging and enabling to just affirm like, right. well, I feel like this person's terrible. You're right. Right. It's like, okay, well, whether that's true or not, yeah, but what do you want to do about it? You know, I think it's much more empowering to, I'm an existentialist in this sense. Like my understanding of existentialism is, is that my life is my responsibility. Uh, And so like, uh, for example, somebody might punch me in the face and knock me over and that's their fault. But if I Mm -hmm. don't get back up again, then that's my fault. Fair. That's, or if you get back up I, and you slug them rather than any number of other options you could take, right. that's I still mean, on you. Well, there's, there's multiple options I could take. You know, mm-hmm. I could fight. I could flee. I could do whatever. But but the point that I'm really trying to make is, is that you, you could get victimized like 17 times. But then what are you going to do after that? To me, that's the empowering, mm-hmm. optimistic version of things. Instead of saying, hey, I'm a helpless victim here. Uh, I, I want to ask at a certain point, what is my part in things and mm-hmm. what am I going to do from here? What's my plan? And that's the most loving thing you can tell somebody if you're encouraging them at any phase. And again, the follow-up to that would be being able to, let's say, um, to I- imply or to, like, I guess, to to add yourself to the conversation depending on the relationship. So if you don't know somebody, it's like, oh, that sucks. What do you want to do about it? Yeah. Now, if it's like somebody you're very close to, it's like, okay, what do you want to do about it? Because I want to know where you're wanting to start, and then I can maybe help or add sure. something to your plan. Sure. But I can't do your plan for you. I can't make right. your life work better. I can't over-function right. for your benefit. So it's okay. You're upset with something. What do you want to do about that? And then how can I help? What can I do to be involved in it? Okay. But it's always going to be secondary to the first person's ability to say, okay, do I want to do something about it? Where am I at? What is my plan? People can add to your plan, but they can't do it for you and expect you to benefit. 
So that goes back to, I know, our last conversation. That's kind of that distance between, okay, yeah, people are victim of circumstance. Everyone goes through mm-hmm. some amount of That's hurt. Right. That's right. Always. That's right. The question of what comes next is the, let's say, the individual's maturity. There are people who have gone through traumatic and horrible and terrible things and have That's risen right. to the occasion and learned from it and became healthier and advocated and did all kinds of wonderful things. And there are people who go through extraordinarily small, petty slights and cannot get through Can't that and, and want go. the world to change around them That's right. and not do anything about it. And so, again, it's not the degree of the herd. It's the character of the person. It's Okay, well, what, what do you want to do about it? Should it or should it have happened? Yes, it's a horrible situation. Yes, that's terrible. I'm so sorry. Right. What do you want to do next? Yeah, I, I feel like sympathy is an order for people who are suffering. Uh, but on the flip side, I just always think of that example from the book Man's Search for Meaning, which is where Eric Fromm was in the Holocaust. He was in Auschwitz. And, you know, mm. just at a certain point, he realized, I have no control over anything. I can't leave. Uh, they're starving people to death. They're executing people. He said, I, I have no choice. I have no freedom. But then there was something inside of him that rebelled against that. And then he realized that he could still choose his response to things that even in the worst situation in the world where you're going to be executed, you still have an option in how you were going to respond to things. And, you know, he decided, hey, I still have some human freedom Mm -hmm. and I am response-able. I'm responsible. And so I just thought, hey, that's beautiful because, hey, that's the worst-case scenario and you still have some freedom. Mm -hmm. So I like that. So kind of bringing it all together is yeah, the virtue yeah. part Let's of that. So, so and, to and avoid the two we'll extremes, conclude. the ideal of masculine femininity is to unite with each other, to be able to both love the person as they are and the person they're becoming, and to, let's say, figure out which one we're better at and be able to work on the other, to be able to benefit from that relationship. Otherwise, we tend to, let's say, go to the extremes, the unhealthy, uh, you know, ancillary toxic pieces of that, of, you know, where either one, there's a certain amount of fear of a lack of control, so we're trying to hyper-control, whether it be to make everything perfect or to dominate. Mm. It's, okay, well, what if we come to the middle and say, let's love somebody as they're going through something? Okay. Let's, you know, again, expect somebody to live their own life and desire to go along the way with them rather than make life so easy they never have anything to complain about, in which case they can't function, or (laughs) just wait until they complete everything to pay attention. It's what if we actually went through the process together? And that's what men and women can both do better is see the process, see the engagement, the, the way in which we go about it, the how as infinitely more important than what we do. Because hmm. what we do, that's important, don't get me wrong. How we do it, the way by which we did it, the benefits we see even through hard times and how we went through this process, what we learned about each other along the way, is always infinitely more important that's than beautiful. what we do. That's really beautiful. Well, I, I don't know if I have any other further questions. Is there <laughs> any, any famous last words you want to give us? Um, that's a great question. That's a good, good setup. Um, I don't know if I have any specific last words other than I think just that idea of, you know, the greatest gift you can give to yourself and others is self-knowledge. Okay. So the more you know yourself, the better you can explain it to other people and have them understand you. And the more that you can know what you like and don't like and not chaotically exist. So for individual level or couples, the more you can work on understanding yourself better as you develop over mm-hmm. time, the greatest gift you can give to yourself or others is self-knowledge. Oh, that's Continually, not just a one-time understanding, but continually seeking that out and understanding you better. That's good. That's really good. Adam, 
Thank you again so much. And, and I, I just enjoy this thoroughly. And I feel like I learned so much from you. And I just hope that we can do this again. That would be lovely. Okay. Thanks. Thank you.